AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget Beach Finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ibera Star Hotels and Resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. Our guest today is Dr. Louise Raw. Dr. Raw is a labor historian with a background in the trade union movement and political campaigning. She has spoken across the world telling the story of the Match Women's Strike of 1888. Her book, Striking a Light, set a new direction for British labor history. In addition to organizing an annual festival in the Match Women's Honor, Dr. Raw has served as a historical consultant for the BBC and appeared on camera in series like The Victorian Slum, which is available in the U.S. as Victorian Slum House. She has written regularly for British newspapers, including The Independent, The Morning Star, and New European. She drops in on BBC Radio London and contributes to programs on BBC Radio 4. It's a privilege to have her here on Unobscured. Researcher Carl Nellis sat down virtually and talked with Dr. Raw for this season of Unobscured, and you'll hear that a storm rolls in partway through their conversation, but Louise couldn't be stopped. I'm grateful for that, and I think you will be too. Carl and Dr. Raw begin their conversation with the winding route into studying and writing forgotten stories from the past. This is the Unobscured interview series for Season 3. I'm Aaron Mankey. I'm a historian, but I like to call myself an accidental historian because that's really accurate in terms of what happened. I'm not an academic historian who always thought they would do that. I'd left school at 15 and I've done, you know, the jobs you do when you leave school at 15, really pubs and restaurants and shops. And I really, through being involved in the trade union movement, fell into becoming the historian in particular of a strike that happened in the East End of London in 1888, that big year of 1888, the strike of the Bryanton Main Match Women. And I really started as an essay on a trade union labour history course about, oh, I don't like to say how long ago, but 20 plus years, shall we say. And I'm still writing that essay, Cole, really, because I'm still researching the match women. I'm still finding out new things about them. And they were my teachers. They really were. They may be dead, but let's not hold that against them. They were my best teachers. Through them, I learned so much about how history 
as I don't need to say to you or your listeners, isn't just a neutral record of everything that happened. It's incredibly political. It can be incredibly biased. It's also very, very powerful. We need it. We as human beings need stories of where we come from. We need stories of people like us. That's really important, whether we're black or working class or female. We need stories about people like us, our achievements and our importance to our country. That's so vital to a sense of our identity. And I learned from my research that British history, of course, is incredibly bad at that. Um, It is a forgetting machine, really, that forgets all the bad things. Well, that Britain's done all the bad things about the empire. Americans may need to be told that Britain did do some bad things historically. You know, we've not been wonderful through the years. You will be stunned, I know, to hear this. But it's not just about the empire. All the achievements of Anyone who's not the kind of great white individual, really, preferably a great white man, we allow a few women to sneak in as well. Anyone who doesn't fit that mold gets really excluded from the narrative. We just can't believe they can have achieved anything. I realised how important that was. And it became my obsession, really, to be a collector of those stories and a teller of those stories because I think history should do something. It's not just there to be interesting and fascinating. It teaches us about who we are and what we're capable of. And it's so important to inspire us today in terms of what we can achieve. People like the match women were supposed to be powerless. They were supposed to be completely irrelevant. Although they're part of the majority of the country, the working classes, they're supposed to be completely irrelevant to it. They're just toiling away. We don't need to know their names. They're a kind of undifferentiated blob of the masses. And we don't need to know anything about them because they're not really people. Of course, that's dehumanising. Of course, it's very dangerous politically to go down that route. And we need these stories. So I'm trying to really turn the spotlight of history onto those stories that have been kept in the dark or pushed into the dark. So part of the way that you have shined a light on some of these stories is is with a fantastic book called Striking a Light that tells the story of the Bryant and May match women's strike, what they won, the durable union that they built um, that had kind of (laughs) fallen victim to that forgetting machine, as you say. can you describe, you, you mentioned the amount of time that you've spent learning their story. Can you describe some of the process of what it took to learn their story? What did that take? That's a lovely description. It really was like wrestling with, with this beast of history and trying to get it to give up these stories that it was obscuring. It was a bit like a whodunit when you know who done it, but nobody wants to believe you about who done it. So I had to prepare a case. And of course, I had no witnesses. That was the first problem. The first thing that I did was to go to the archives. I kind of toddled down in my lunch break. I remember from work, I happened to be working quite close to where the Bryant and May company archives were then kept, which was in the basement of a little local history museum. And I had not been in an archive. I have to tell you, I did not know what that entailed at all. So I was completely fronting it out. Oh, yeah, hello, I'm here to look at you. I know exactly what I'm doing. And they took me down to this basement and they bought me loads and loads of enormous cardboard boxes. Now, this is not how archival work is done now. 
you're ordering one document at a time if you're lucky. But then they just left me with these boxes. And I thought, I have no idea what to do here. So I opened the boxes, started rooting through. Papers in there from the 1860s, the 1960s, it's all jumbled up. Fascinating. So I just had a route through and very quickly came upon some evidence that the strike was not at all as I'd been taught it. Those historians who'd written about it, the mainly manly historians, the mainly manly Marxists who had written about the strike, had only done so very briefly. There would be the odd line about it. Oh, this strike happened, but it wasn't very important. It was just a few girls. It wasn't really a big deal. And crucially, that the strike was led from the outside by a socialist called Abby Besant. She's chiefly pushed into the role of strike leader. Because she was middle class, that meant it's not a real, proper, worker-organised strike. So that means immediately it's downgraded. It's not an important fact of labour, of working class history, because what are the match girls in that scenario? Puppets. They're just puppets. They've been told what to do. So I'm in the archives. I quickly come upon a note the foreman had made, the foreman of the factory, saying these are the women who we think are the troublemakers and the ringleaders of this strike. And I thought, oh, hello. Well, if this is a strike that was completely organised from the outside, how can there be ringleaders from the inside? So I started to draw up a timeline to prove, I suppose I was trying to prove myself wrong because I'm not an academic at this point at all. As I say, I've left school at 15 and, you know, men have written in books that this was not an important strike and that this was led from the outside. Who am I to question that? And yet I'm a trade unionist, didn't know at the time that, you know, my whole life really had been a preparation and that I had the advantage of not being an academic, of having been involved with strikes, of having been involved with workers a bit like this. So I had to prove it. And I started drawing up a timeline. And my goodness, you know, I'd love to say I was following some kind of classical academic tradition, but I kind of made it up as I went along just to pursue this story. How do you do it? There's no timeline of events. We only have a few lines on it. Oh, some girls went on strike. wasn't a big deal. Nothing to see here. Move along until some men do it with the great dog strike the next year. So I'm thinking, right, I need a timeline. So I literally down the middle of my front room, put a line of papers, wrote dates on them, and then got every bit of evidence I possibly could from newspapers, from people's journals, from any kind of commentary I could find, local papers, national papers, you know, George Bernard Shaw's diary, Annie Besant's journal, William Morris, any of the celebrity socialists who were around at the time. And working through these, I managed to piece together, okay, so it seems to have, this seems to have been what really began the strike. This seems to have been what happened next. And I went to um, the Collindale newspaper library, absolutely wonderful, ruined my eyesight, you know, looking at microfiche and microfilm of reports in local papers, because local papers did carry the strike, actually. There was a paper called The Star that was very interested and sent reporters down there. But and from that, I did manage to come up with a good, solid timeline, which told a completely different story from the orthodox version. This is a proper strike. It's a spontaneous strike. It's a reaction to management bullying. And they're brilliantly organised. They're not just these 
little girls who are who are being told you know the orthodox version would suggest that Annie Besant who was a journalist at the time went down to the factory and, and sort of for, for no apparent reason told the match girls they were going on strike you know, I say girls you know you don't know me but uh, George Bernard Shaw and I who you don't know either have had a vote and we've decided for no real reason you know it's a Wednesday we're bored we've decided you're all going on strike I mean, how ludicrous. And and supposedly the women just said, oh, God bless your mama. Certainly, whatever you say, we'll be there. This is not how strikes happen. This is not how real life happens at all. So I had to, to really claw back. And once I had the timeline, I had immensely contradictory accounts, you know, orthodox history. Annie Besant led the strike. Annie Besant, oh, my God, the match wouldn't have gone on strike. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, I shouldn't actually say that. And she's thinking, oh, no, this is a disaster. Why have they gone and strike? We can't afford to support these people financially. Oh, shit. Or the Victorian equivalent of that. Not knowing the strike has happened. And I'm thinking, my goodness, if I can find this out, what the hell is happening here? How have historians who've looked at this strike managed to conclude that this woman who's 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 like sort of that shaggy song, it wasn't me. That's Annie Besant in 1888. She's running around going, I did not start that strike. That was not my idea. She said, I think it's a terrible idea that they've gone on strike. Why did they have to do it? And yet historians have looked at that and gone, yep, definitely started by this middle class woman. That's how blinkered we are, isn't it, in terms of class? We just can't accept anything else. Then I thought, well, I've got these accounts, but they're mostly middle class accounts. They're from journalists or, as I say, from your Morrises and your George Bernard Shaws. And there's this kind of hilarious incomprehension of middle class people observing what working class people are doing as if they're another species, really. And one journalist goes along to the picket line and he says, well, these are really extraordinary looking women. Gosh, they are strange. They they seem to have this sort of style where their clothes, they've got wear patches on their clothes and they have very broken boots and it's very odd. Yes, this is not a fashion fella. They are poor. <laughs> you know, there's complete, the class is just, there's such a gulf between a middle-class journalist and a working-class match factory woman that's complete incomprehension. So I thought, I'm trying to put a case here without the witnesses, without the real witnesses who are, of course, the women themselves. What do we do about that when they are very, very dead by the time I'm researching this? And I thought, well, the closest I'm going to get, isn't it, is to get to their descendants if possible, if I can possibly find grandchildren or maybe even great grandchildren by this point, that's as close as I'm possibly going to get. And goodness, lots of historians advise me not to do this. That's a terrible idea. It's very hard to trace women forward through history, to trace their families. It is hard, by the way, that is completely true. But also, again, I felt there was this class thing, why would you want to talk to their descendants? They probably won't know anything about the strike. They might be a bit old and, and perhaps a bit doodally by this stage. Would they even, would they know, would they understand the importance of it? And you sort of think, well, just because they're po- probably working class still, I mean, who knows, they may not be at this point, doesn't mean they won't know anything about this event. But to me, that seems to be the impression that I was being given, oh, a really, really bad idea to do that. But I persevered. I wrote a little piece for the Irish Times because I thought, well, 
could have family that have gone back to Ireland. I knew that a lot of these women were Irish or Irish heritage and didn't really get me anywhere. Got me a lot of interesting letters, but nothing that really connected me. And then I was doing a talk um, at the Docklands Museum in London. And I was saying, oh, I'm talking about the match and I was saying, oh, and I'm looking for descendants, but it's so difficult to find. And at the end, a woman came up to me, a woman called Joan Harris. And she said, oh, sorry to bother you, love. I know you're trying to probably get away, but I think the photograph you showed of the women, I think that's my grandmother in there, in the back, and probably her sister as well, my great aunt. And I was sort of like, lock the doors, do not let this woman escape. <laughs> you are going nowhere, madam, until I have your address. And I immediately went round to interview her like, <laughs> like a rat up a drain vibe as quickly as I could. That's where it all began fascinating story of Mary Driscoll who was her grandmother then I spoke at another uh, museum the Ragged School Museum and I was talking about that I was saying and would you believe I got so lucky I met this woman who was a descendant and two blokes at the back went well actually love yeah our uh, our grandmothers were match women as well and again I was like go nowhere go nowhere and I met um, Jim Best and Ted Lewis these were so valuable so valuable you know oral history can be looked down on a little bit it's not not quite proper not quite documentary but these people taught me so much I would walk around the east end with Ted Lewis and he was a historian you know he may not have been a professional one but he was a historian that man to his bones because he could take me around the modern east end and make me see past the concrete and say well over there girl there was a music hall over there over there that's the pub where my, where my grandma used to go that's where she used to buy her jelly deals that's where she used to go to the market and suddenly you see it you see it and it's real and those people are brought closer to you so that book wouldn't have happened without those descendants and they are I was learning from them you know there was none of this thing of the historian goes to interview the informants who were very minor in the process I learned everything really from them about how it really was and about how how events were remembered in the East End which runs parallel but separate from how their grandmothers have been remembered in conventional history they don't have this Annie Besant this top-down version of the strike they have that was my grandma and her mates and they were pretty proud of it. They were quite pleased about their strike love. Yeah, they were pretty pleased about that. Didn't have much time to think about it because they were straight back to work. So they didn't have time to sit around and write your books like you're doing. But they were, yeah, they used to talk about it and they were pretty pleased. And that's amazing. That's a, you know, an un, um, uncorrupted sort of preserved in amber version. And that's as close to the horse's mouth as you're going to get. Mm. And. I love reading the book because you can see their stories shining through. I mean, I think I'm so glad that you that you met up with them and talked with them because it gave so much life to your book. So I hope we'll spend especially a few more minutes talking about Mary Driscoll later on. Um, But let's let's go now. Can you take us a little bit back to that London of the late 1800s? Um, let's start with getting oriented in the place. What's the geography of London like from the big picture to the East End? Mm. Well, we really only have an East End 
from around this period. Of course, London's always had an Eastern bit. It's, it's not new. They don't suddenly stick it on in the 1880s. But it only starts to be talked about as the East End around this period. And London is such a separate collection of communities and such disparate areas. It's, it's hard to conceive, really, of how cut off different bits of London are from one another, and particularly along a class line. This is really, really crucial. You can't look at London without that. And people start to talk about East End to West End, Worst End to Best End. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about posh London and disreputable London, which is what the East End becomes. Everything really changes with industrialization. London becomes much more divided. Before that, you've had rich and poor living fairly cheap by jowl. So imagine a typical London square. If anybody's ever seen EastEnders, you've still got some of those old houses facing onto a square. And the rich people are living in those lovely big houses. And then behind them, rows and rows of sort of service streets, really, where people live who are perhaps working for them. But people are close together. And then we have industrialization, everything changes. People come in from the countryside, from working in, you know, perhaps on farms or working in a very feudal setup, really, perhaps the, for the lord of the manor in some capacity. They come flooding into the new towns and cities, and especially London, to work in the new factories. Nothing's ready for them, nothing's prepared. So they just come crowding into. London and the rich get the hell out as soon as they can and steam trains of course make that possible suddenly we have new suburbs so you can get out you can come back into London for work and then you can get away from all the dirt and the dust and the disorder of industrialization and you know it's a pretty stinky process industrialization particularly in the East End where you had a lot of slaughterhouses as well it absolutely stank on, on some days so they could get out and they left the poor, particularly in the East End, just to get the hell on with it. They had very little infrastructure, you know, forget about social services or, or, or really good schooling or any sort of help. Of course, there are no welfare benefits at all in those days. They're just left to get on with it. They haven't even got street lighting in, in the East End. When you read about, you know, the darkest East and the dark streets, well, they really were dark because they were unlit a lot of the time. And we start to find that people, even who live quite near to the East End, claim they don't know where it is. I mean, it sounds so bizarre, but literally Jack London finds this. He asks people, I think he asks some shopkeepers, oh, I'm trying to find this place called the East End. Can you tell me sort of where does it start? Where does it begin? How do I go? And these, you know, quite well, quite respectable shopkeepers. I, I've, I've heard tell of it, but I, I am afraid I couldn't tell you where such a place is. I would never go there. Well, one simply would never go there. And people would pretend they couldn't find the East End on a map. Well, of course they could. But it became this embodiment of sin and, and, and depravity and disreputable poverty. So you were not respectable if you had connections in the East End, if you had friends there, if you went there apart from, from, from business. So it's so bizarre, isn't it? We have this area 
which is producing a lot of the wealth of the country. So we have all these important factories there. We're unloading the wealth of empire at the docks there. It's crucial, crucial to the glittering success of the Victorian empire. And we're pretending it doesn't exist. We're pretending we don't know it's there. And we're calling it the darkest East as, as Orientalist language, as if it's this strange terror incognito, this weird place completely cut adrift, sort of culturally and mentally cut adrift from the rest of London. So London's a divided place. And if we say, what was life like in London? We'd have to say, well, whose life and where? It completely depends on how much money you have. I mean, doesn't it always, but particularly at this time and in this place. And what kind of life are you doing and where are you? Completely different lives. To the extent that there are events in history, there are marches and protests and the matrimonial strike is one of them, where the poor leave their district. You know, and that wasn't allowed at all. People were horrified. Knowing your place, literally keeping in your place is geographical as well as cultural. And people would throw things. I mean, we have protest marches in the 1880s where the servants of the posh clubs in Palma, you know, the gentlemen's clubs in Palma, come out on the doorsteps and throw things at the poor who are marching past them. They throw heavy glass ashtrays, they throw shoes, you know, they're cleaning the gentlemen's shoes and they get to the carriage where they throw them at the poor. You know, go home, what are you doing here? Get out of here. So who's London? For the poor, they were told, this is your part of London, the rest of it does not belong to you and you shouldn't even be there. When the match women during their strike marched to Parliament, it literally stopped the traffic. People stopped and stared and catcalled and hurled abuse at them because the poor were, yeah, supposed to be preferably not seen as well as not heard. You were supposed to be invisible. That was a lot more comfortable, of course, for the rich if you were invisible. So it's just this hugely divided place at this point. Mm. And you've mentioned there, you've started to bring in the context of London as the largest city in the world at the time, the nerve center of a global empire. How would you describe the conditions of working people, you know, do you have a few more comments on the relationship between the conditions of working people to London's financial significance, to its imperial significance at the time? As somebody said on observing the dockers at work, there's this huge contradiction because they're unloading the wealth and the riches and the silks and the spices and the teas and all this wonderful, luxurious stuff. And they're touching all things and tasting none. They're dealing in these goods. They can never, ever afford them. They're unloading tea that they will never taste. They're unpacking spices that they will never be able to enjoy, silks that their wives will never be able to wear. So there's this immense and it seems to modernise immensely hypocritical division here. We are this incredibly rich. I mean, mostly because we're stolen stuff from other people around the world. But, you know, that is how the British do things. It's a little tradition of ours to do that. But we have become incredibly rich off the backs of other people, including our own poor people. So they are the engine of our prosperity. 
and they're not getting to share in it whatsoever. We treat them almost like machinery. You can process things. You can produce our wealth. There's nothing to do with you. You don't get a share in it whatsoever. And yet we have this jingoistic sort of flag waving narrative that's in the music halls at the time and in all the songs everyone in Britain is doing well we're also incredibly proud to be British and yet most of Britain is being excluded and might let them wave a flag occasionally but they're being excluded from any of those benefits huge wealth is being made and people are working 12 16 hour days and starving to death how do you square that How is that in any way fair? Even according to the fairly simplistic um, Christian-ish Victorian narrative that everyone's in their place and God puts you in your place and, you know, the rich man in his castle, the poor man at the gate, be happy with your place in life. Even then, it's a little bit hard to argue that the people making the wealth helping to make the wealth should be actually starving to death whilst working. What do the Victorians do about this? Well, they could have reformed things. They could have improved housing. They could have improved working conditions. But why would you do that? That's expensive. It's a lot easier to divide the poor into the deserving and the undeserving. Virtually no one is deserving poor, really. Even if you are, they'll find a way that you're doing something wrong and being the wrong sort of poor person. So we can blame these people. Oh, well, they must be drinking. Oh, well, they can't really be working hard enough. And when there are occasional stories of you know, a doctor being called to a woman who's, who's working 16-hour days and who's literally died of malnutrition, it's all a bit awkward and embarrassing. Don't quite know what to do about that. So tend to do nothing, really. Well, she probably had a husband who drank. It's probably some kind of, you know, profligate behaviour was going on there. And it's really only when the upper classes absolutely have to. I mean, there are some exceptions. Of course, there are reformers and philanthropists. But really, it's when there's something like cholera and they realise that disease doesn't necessarily respect class boundaries that we get people going into the East End, missions to the East End to try to help these poor souls, but in very much a top-down way. There's no equality there. It's oh these poor souls, these poor, there's mass of people called the poor who are always with us, as Jesus said, and we'll go in and pat them on the head a little bit and tell them to clean themselves up and sort themselves out and give them a little bit of rather cold charity. So there's no There's no respect, really, for working class people at all. They are written about as animals a lot of the time. The terrible conditions that they're living in are blamed on them as if they're choosing, you know, as if a family of Irish migrants who are living 15 to a room have chosen that. You know, they could have lived in a five story townhouse, but they decided they'd much rather all live in one room with no running water and granny dying in the corner. Much more fun. That's what they like to do. So we stigmatise and we blame people for conditions that are absolutely no fault of their own. Mm. In the book, in Striking a Light, you cite an argument that in the Victorian era, um, here's a quote from the book, the power, social standing and influence of the industrial bourgeoisie increased exponentially to the point where it had been argued it became the hegemonic class, that its values eventually suffusing and dominating the entire society. Um, 
Did you find this sort of thing to be true as you conducted your research? And to what extent does that include ideals about domestic femininity among working class women? So how true was it that really it was middle class rather even than than upper class kind of culture that became the dominant culture in Victorian society? Mm, Yes, we definitely do see that happen. We see what people might be familiar with as the angel in the house narrative that the little woman should be embroidering by the fire and making a lovely domestic haven for her man to come home to. Now we think of that as just being old-fashioned like that's an idea that's always been there but it wasn't you see this is a new idea. What the men who and it is generally men that are always who make money through being capitalists by owning factories, for the first time, there's real social mobility that's possible for working class people if they have enough money to buy a factory to set up production of matches, say, which is actually quite cheap. It's quite a low capital investment kind of a thing to do. Then they can start to rise up the social scale in a way that just wasn't possible before. Suddenly they've got money. Suddenly they have status and they look around and think, well, What are we going to do about the fact that we're still looked down on by the upper classes who say a gentleman doesn't work? Now, these aristocratic sods, you know, they're always a bit short of cash. So they're very happy to have their sons marry our daughters. They're very happy to borrow money off us because they're always short of the old readies, aren't they, to heat their their massive, you know, country piles. But they look down on us. No gentleman would be involved in trade. We can't have that. So they decide how they want to be seen. And obviously, they scrap the idea that no gentleman can be involved in trade. But what they take from the Aristos, they like this idea of the lady of leisure. They think we'll have some of that for ourselves. We like that. We like the idea of being able to show off our wealth and status by the fact that our daughters and wives don't work and that they can be decorative and that they can keep a lovely home for us. So they take that idea. You have to be able to hold at least two contradictory ideas in your head at any one time to be a Victorian. Really, really important if you're going to be a middle or upper class Victorian. So you have to consider that these men are going in to factories where the labour is very often female. 75% of the workers who industrialised first were women. So women had always worked despite the myth that they hadn't. So you have to go into work, make your money from sort of Elsie and Mary and Martha and all those women who are making your fortune for you. Then go home and say, well, women shouldn't work. That's disgraceful. Women working is terrible. It's not respectable. They should be learning the piano and uh, riding horses and, and looking pretty. So it's very, very strange. And it does have an effect on the people that it's, criticizing it really does we do see women saying working class women who said they didn't work after they got married because this was the idea you know obviously once you're a married lady you shouldn't the the breadwinner wage a thing which never existed it was a complete fantasy your man will look after you you should be at home looking after the children and making the house lovely for him this myth does penetrate the minds of working class women. And you can see that when you're going around trying to do oral history interviews and saying to people, tell me about your your granny or your great granny or your mom, did they work? Oh no, they never worked after they were married. 
Well, I mean, they took in laundry and they did a bit of canning for the local factory and they actually made matchboxes at home. And in fact, these women never stopped working. They worked 24-7. But it, the narrative gets adopted to the extent of people saying, oh, yes, I, I'm not really working because, you know, I'm just working the pin money. Not true at all. And we also see the working classes sometimes completely rejecting this respectability narrative, which is the big thing for Victorians, respectability. They love a bit of that, at least in theory, not so much in practice, as it turns out. But they adapt it. It's really interesting. So you'll get people who will say, well, my family were respectable, but the Pitaways down at number 17, they definitely were respectable. Or we were respectable, but two streets over, they weren't respectable. So everyone redefines it to suit themselves. Factory girls are the most looked down on, probably, and they're looked down on by servants as being really common and rough and probably immoral. But they, in turn, look down on servant women and say, well, you're basically enslaved to you we are free so everyone's jockeying for position and defining and redefining but they are very creative with it they don't and obviously they can't just accept this notion of respectability and say oh no we're not respectable we're terrible people we shouldn't be working they know they have to but we also see people completely rejecting it we see people whose parents who are trade unionists are very poor and working class will say to them don't ever let anyone look down on you who will walk them around London and say look at these beautiful buildings in posh London who do you think built them that was our law that was us from the back slums always remember that remember who's created London really from the navvies you know building the railways and the canals we have made this and always be proud and always remember that so you do get a lot of that resistance as well it's a really fascinating time for that. In, in writing about middle-class stereotypes, you describe uh, the symbolic triad of the good wife, the, the celibate spinster, and the prostitute as kind of the three categories that were possible to imagine for women. And you also write that, of course, as you've been saying, working-class women who were working outside the home, particularly alongside men, they didn't exactly fit any of those three, but they risked classification mostly as prostitutes if they were going to be shoehorned into one of those three. Would you offer a few more comments on on perceptions maybe of sex work and factory work for women at the time and why it was so easy for especially middle-class Victorians to equate those two? It's no coincidence that the term working girl becomes a euphemism for prostituted women or for sex workers at this time. A study of Victorian literature really fascinated me because they concluded that if a novelist wanted to have her readers sympathise with her, their down-on-their-luck heroine, they would make her a prostitute rather than a factory girl because nobody had any sympathy with factory girls. They're sort of worse in some ways, because at least with prostituted women, there's this fallen woman narrative, which the Victorians get terribly excited about. They love a fallen woman, because a fallen woman can be redeemed, you see. She can realise how ghastly and beastly her behaviour has been, and she can come to Jesus, and she can be forgiven. But somebody who's working, well, that's a little bit different, isn't it? Because they're probably going to continue doing it. You see this incredible 
judgmental and very sexualized, by the way, narrative, even in labor reports of the period. There was one mining commissioner, you know, who knows what working life is like, you would think. And yet he looks at the terrible conditions down mines where you've got girls, women, boys, men crawling through tunnels all day on their hands and knees, you know, naked to the waist with chains around their waist, pulling carts of coal. Absolutely horrific. Imagine the heat. Imagine the difficulty in breathing. Imagine the physical horror of that. But he looks at that and doesn't say, well, yes, conditions are pretty awful. He writes about it as if it's some sort of orgy going on because the women are partly dressed, partially dressed, as you would be in those conditions. You're not going to wear your best dress, are you, to crawl on your hands and knees through a coal shaft? And he says the conditions, the, the, the sight, the spectacle of these women at work was absolutely revolting, disgusting. It was obscene. No brothel can beat it. And firstly, you think, well, Mr. Mining Commissioner, you seem a bit well versed in exactly what a brothel is like. I wonder what Mrs. Mining Commissioner might have had to say about that one. But also how bizarre, how bizarre and how sort of pervy, really, and slightly fetishistic do you have to be to look at children, you know, in those awful conditions and say, oh, good grief, they're partially closed. Oh, they must all be having, you know, they must be all be having sex with each other, disgraceful and disgusting. As if these people, they must have thought, well, a chance would be a fine thing. You know, these people are exhausted. They're absolutely exhausted and they're starving. And yet that is what we see. We look at a factory and we see women working alongside men and we say, well, she's clearly no better than she should be. But again, that's a lovely way to dehumanise people. It's a lovely way to stigmatise them and blame them. Well, no wonder you're poor. Look at the way you're carrying on. It's absolutely disgraceful. And yeah, that symbolic triad is absolutely fascinating in the, the fact that working women don't figure in it at all. When we do hear about working women, there are always comments on their morality. We have people like Charles Booth, who reported and investigated London poverty, and he will always say about groups of women, well, you know, they're a bit rough, but they're not too bad morally. That's always significant. One of his causes of poverty that I really love, actually, was having a drunken or feckless wife. I think we'd all like to be that drunken and feckless wife. But th these are the judgments. There's always these incredible sexual judgments and they're only really put on women. They're not really put upon men at all. And we see it in the Contagious Diseases Acts where the government decides to act as if women are giving themselves venereal disease. In cases of prostitution, as if women are doing prostitution all by themselves. No one else is doing it. There can't be anyone else involved. Of course, the reality is that middle class and upper class men are sneaking into poor areas and using them as sexual playgrounds. Who on earth is visiting the brothels? Poor working men often can't afford to. And there are also lots of incidences of people, you know, sexual predators trying to drag women and children as well away from groups down the darkened back alleys. That's a very dangerous place. But we do get this siren idea that it's, it's the women of the East End, the women of the poor areas are luring these poor, innocent men who are just trying to get home to their wives. Leave me alone, you wretched women. They're being dragged into these brothels. It's incredibly bizarre. And even the people who are supposed to be in sympathy with these women, your Josephine Butlers and your Charles Dickens, there's incredibly 
patronizing and judgmental language about the women as if they are somehow corrupt, as if they are somehow eugenically degraded. And even if, like Charles Dickens did, you can save them from themselves and rehabilitate them from prostitution, you better then get them to move abroad because we don't really want them staying in London. Josephine Butler, who has a dying prostitute to live with her at the end of her days, which sounds lovely, but she assures everyone she's not letting her children go anywhere near this woman or see this woman, this poor girl who's dying and consumptive, because they could be corrupted. So there really is this horribly eugenic idea of bad, bad women, contrasted with the angel in the house who, you know, oh, wreathed in clouds of glory, the shining example, ghastly poem. I have to say apologies to Coventry Patmore fans, but ghastly poem, epic poem by Coventry Patmore, where he writes about the life of the perfect, you know, surrendered wife, really, who completely subjugates herself to the needs of her man and casts herself down the gulf of his condoled necessities, more falling and flinging and casting. There's an awful lot of that for women. Apparently written about his first wife who dies young, and I could only say I really don't blame her. I think if I'd had to listen to much epic poetry like that, I would have chosen to die young as well. So again, it's just incredibly hypocritical. And a woman's place in the East End of London is in the wrong. You cannot do right for doing wrong at this period. <laughs> that gives us a, a pretty well-rounded picture of uh, how middle-class Victorians were thinking about working women and the East End. Um, but a lot of your work has been to try, as you've said, through talking with descendants um, and through the other kinds of research that you did in archives and, and all the rest, to try to get a sense of what life was like for those people. And maybe could you offer us what life was like for those people in the East End if if or when they could have expressed it themselves? What was life like actually in the East End, not through the eyes of a Victorian journalist or a Victorian, Victorian novelist, but from a Victorian worker? Hmm. Again, there's obviously no one East End life and no one account of East End life. But you can draw out some common themes. For children in particular, people look back on their East End childhoods and they would tell me that they remembered the warmth and the comfort of very close families. I mean, literally very close because you'd be sleeping six to a bed sometimes if you had a bed, of course. But they remembered that as really comforting. And later, if they did make enough money to move out and have their own places, they kind of miss that. They kind of miss having their brothers and sisters all around them. But then they would tell you it was incredibly hard. I mean, being poor is exhausting. It's exhausting now. It was particularly exhausting then. You're working long hours. And you may be all snug in that bed together, but also your room is probably crawling with insects. It was a nightly process for kids to get their shoes and bash the black beetles that infested the tenements and the rooms of the East End so that they could go to sleep without being woken up by being bitten. And people would sleep outside, actually, on roofs if they could, until the 1920s to escape that. So 
Nighttime when you desperately need to sleep is really noisy. There's always dogs barking, drunk people shouting, people doing moonlight flip, the fine East End tradition to try and get ahead of the landlord and the rent and load everything into a cart at midnight and flip off to your next address. But people do remember extraordinary solidarity, really, and the, the ingenuity that people use to help each other but to do it so everyone could preserve their dignity. So if you knew that someone in your tenement was really struggling and Pat's husband had been laid off at the docks and they had no money, you wouldn't help them in that sort of patronising Lady Bountiful way that you know you resent being helped yourself by the middle classes. You'd send little Jimmy over to knock on the door with a saucepan and say, oh, all right, Mrs Jones, mum's made too much food tonight, you know, silly old mare. She's made too much food, so she said, could you please use this for us because we're we're just going to have to throw it away otherwise. So you really would give people their dignity. The way that the poor organised themselves into these incredible communities, every street had its queen, every street had its auntie, they went by different names, but there was a woman in every street who was the go-to gal. So if you were skinned, if you were in trouble, you would go to this woman and she would help you out. And this could be by the woman who was an unofficial midwife before the NHS, the unofficial undertaker, and um, the person who would tell you which butcher you could go to if you were really skint and he'd give you the bones out the back door so you could make soup out of them, who'd tell you which shopkeepers would give you tick, would give you credit, who'd tell you when to go to the market to pick up what they called the specs, the, the fruit and veg that got dropped on the ground. So it was all about your mates. You could survive. You had to be quite popular. Your social skills had to be pretty good because if you were obnoxious, no one's going to help you when the landlord or the bailiff comes knocking. No one's going to look after you. But as long as you play by the rules and have this community spirit, people will help you. If your husband's violent, your neighbours will come in and help you. If um, dad is trying to sexually assault or attack the children when he comes home drunk from the pub, your neighbours will pull your children over the back fence and hide them in theirs until dad's calmed down. But it would be wrong to say that all the East End poor were drunk and violent. Not at all. They couldn't have survived. There had to be very, very sensible, very practical, very hardworking people, often women, who could make something out of nothing, who could feed 10 children on not much more than fresh air really and make do and mend and repair and keep your place as clean as you could with no running water you know going down three flights of stairs bringing the water up heating it over the fire to get any sort of hot water and yet keeping things just hygienic enough so that everybody survives it's a mammoth task it's the poverty olympics you wonder how anyone managed to survive this, let alone to thrive. But they did. And people look back with incredible respect on their mums and their grandmas who had all these skills and all this ingenuity. So it's a very, very mixed picture. Of course, there's misery. Of course, there's death and horror and disease and violence. Of course, there is and starvation, hunger all the time. But there's also people who are very united. And they're particularly united because they know that they're judged and they're looked down on by everybody else. 
So they unite. So they take on this East Ender identity, which is an insult, by the way. That's how it starts. East Ender is an insult. And they, what we call, revalorize that. They turn that around and they say, no, we're very proud of our streets. We're proud of our community. We're proud of our friends and neighbors. We all work together. We all stick together. And they had a great deal of of totally justified pride in that. They were incredible people. And thinking about how these neighborhoods were changing shape around the working people, um, you, you talked about in, in industrial industrialism reshaping London. Um, in the book, you mention that when the St. Catherine's docks were built, they displaced eleven thousand, more than eleven thousand people. Who undertook that dock? building project and what happened with those people who were displaced what did that look like for this east end of london where these communities were living this was a disaster because even though their houses were pretty grim and pretty ghastly they were at least houses this was their home this was near to work often these were dockers often who were displaced by the building of this new docks A dock company was set up. They'd been trying to develop this area since the 1700s. They could see the profit in it. And it was Robert Telford, the famous Robert Telford, um, the engineer. It was his only big building and development project in London. And it was not just St. Catherine's Docks. This happened as well when they built the underground. They would just knock down poor houses without so much as a buy your leave. If you were better off and a property owner, then you get compensation. If you didn't, tough, on you go. And we presume, because nobody bothered to record where people went, that they just went deeper into London. They just increased the overcrowding everywhere else. They would have had no choice, perhaps stay with friends, go wherever you could. A lot of them would just have been homeless and there was a a large increase in homelessness. But again, this is very typical of London. We think of pulling down the tenements as a good thing of slum clearance, as a good thing. And of course, getting rid of insanitary housing is a good thing. But if you're not providing any alternatives for people, how can it be? And that's what was so extraordinary. Very few people at the time wrote about that. They wrote about, isn't this wonderful? We're getting rid of all this awful housing. Well, hello, there are people in those houses. Where are they going to go? They'd probably rather have a really grotty, dirty roof over their head with their family and friends and neighbours around them than no roof over their head at all. And of course, if they're homeless, they get judged and castigated for being homeless. And it's really, it's quite surprising that that has still been talked about as this really interesting, huge development and how good that it got rid of terrible slums. And there's been very little comment even now on what a disaster it was to lose your home and how completely discombobulating as if life wasn't bad and uncertain enough suddenly you've got to move and you need to be near work because you can't afford to get public transport so you're working so it could be a disaster couldn't it to have to be four or five miles away from your work just everything just makes poverty worse that's really what happens in London at this period just about everything that happens happens to the poor and makes their lives so much worse mm-hmm. so you've you've talked a little bit about uh that middle class culture that shaped Victorian thinking about poverty in London. Um, Let's talk a little more about the role of journalism specifically 
and especially stories like uh, the Maiden Tribute of Modern Babylon series or the Bitter Cry of Outcast London, um, in creating an imaginative geography of the East End for London readers, like we've talked about, those two pieces you mentioned in your book, how influential were they and what kind of substance did they add to the, the general ideas about the East End? Yeah, it's a very interesting period for the sensationalist press. And it all comes about because they drop attacks on newspapers. So suddenly it's possible and quite cost effective to publish daily. And in order to keep readers interested, we get these serializations of often very dramatic and quite salacious stories. So we certainly get that with W.T. Stead, the journalist who wrote the maiden tribute to modern Babylon. And what that was about was the supposed sex trafficking of young London girls to foreign brothels. And again, you know, foreign, it's much easier to be outraged and to deal with and look at these things when it's not brothels here in England. It's those foreigners taking our girls. But what he actually did, and um, goodness, I don't think you get away with this now, was smuggled a young girl away to France just to prove that it could be done. He struggled to get accounts for various reasons of that really proved this was happening extensively. So he did this to at least show that it could be done. And to be honest, the whole thing was highly dubious. He seems to have paid this girl's mother to effectively buy her and there's no suggestion that anything went on between him and this girl I should stipulate but the whole thing you know it's highly ethically questionable to say the very least but of course readers lap this up innocent young girls are being trafficked into prostitution you can see how that's going to sell papers but it also casts the people of the East End in a ghastly light, doesn't it? They're selling their children. These awful, it proves everything, doesn't it, that we've suspected about these people who are degraded and not really proper humans and they're animals and they will even sell their own children. That's how low they will go. So although he's trying to get the age of consent raised with this and ultimately he does achieve that, so his aim is good, it just is more demonization of the poor and more suggestion that the East End is this ghastly, immoral, criminal place where all these ghastly acts begin. And in fact, there was this idea that the poor didn't love their children, which is a really strange one. How separate of a species have you got to be considered if people question whether you love your children? And there are even some commentators who say, well, you know, I've talked to some of these poor people and do you know they actually do? They actually love their children. The poor use their children well. <laughs> They're very surprised about this. Why shouldn't they? Well, of course, because their children are working. And again, the ludicrousness to modern eyes of making people so poor that everyone in the family has to work from six years old and then saying, well, do you love your children if you're making them work is so hypocritical to our eyes. And then we have Mearns, the bitter cry of outcast London, which again is a very, very famous piece. But outcast, the very language of it, you know, there are people who are beyond the pale, they're outside normal society. And it is 
judgmental. It's very top down. We're looking down on these people. We're saying, well, they don't attend church very often. They're not regular attenders at worship. Mins talks about that an awful lot. Talks about immorality. Very obsessed with that. The fact that in these crowded houses and people are sleeping together in the same bed you know there could be incest there could be immorality that's always the implication and that if we're not careful in means eyes one of the reasons we should do something about this and definitely he is saying that we should do something about this is because we might have revolution otherwise and revolution the ultimate terror so it's not let's be fair to the poor because it's fair or let's stop people starving and dying because we're a very rich country and nobody needs to starve and die. It's there will be consequences if we don't. There could be revolution if they don't. There could be people having the wrong sort of sex with the wrong sort of people if we don't. So there's always this need to justify why on earth we should help these people who are you know, in the East End, they're within a stone's throw of posh London. They're so close to Parliament. And that, by the way, is another reason that the East End becomes so feared and, and watched and people are keeping an eye on it for signs of revolution because they there is this uneasy awareness that's so close to the centre of power are all these thousands upon thousands of people who we are working to death, basically, and who we are making starve to death. And my goodness, we're all in trouble if they get a bit uppity. Mm. Mm. And over and over, you again, this is something that you mentioned a little bit earlier, but I'd like to explore with a few more comments. Um, the way that writers compared East London to the imperial borderlands and the kinds of mystique uh, the kind of Orientalist thinking that was used to talk about the Middle East or or India were applied to Bethnal Green and Wapping. Um, could you give us an example of that kind of writing that drew the imperial logic into London itself? We hear it absolutely constantly when people talk about the East End. It's the mysterious East. It's the darkest East. It's a terra incognita. It's a darkened land. It's a place that we cannot find on a map. It's this alien culture. And of course, that's, again, super handy if you want to justify the fact that you are letting people starve is to say, well, they're not like us, you see. But we can't really comment on how other cultures in other countries live. That's up to them. That's not our business, how they run themselves. And this is a separate country within our own country. These are not really people like us. They're not even really human. They're certainly not really normal English people. So what can we do? They choose to live like this. And it's another way of demonizing people and othering people. And we see the result of this in what's known as slumming. What people like to do, who'd read these sensationalist, dramatic tales of the darkest East, was to go and visit it, often with a couple of policemen who were paid to accompany them. And they would go around and stare at the poor, basically. So they would go into the slums, into the tenements, and look at how they lived. And it was supposed to be, I suppose, sometimes somewhat philanthropic. Oh, dear, they could exclaim about, oh, dear, how terrible. You know, I do at least understand the conditions of the poor because I bothered to go and see it. But then there were a lot of posh 
young ladies and gentlemen who just thought it was a laugh, really. And it was a, a freak show. So it was akin to going to laugh at the bearded lady at the circus and laugh at the freaks. And how awful that must have been to experience. I worked on a TV show for the BBC a few years ago called The Victorian Slum. Loved working on it because they recreated a slum, essentially a tenement. And for an absolute geek historian like me, that's as close as you were going to get. It was tremendously exciting to be in those beautifully recreated. Well, I say beautifully, they're horrible living accommodation, but to be almost in it was incredible. But what I've never forgotten about that, and I'm still friends with some of the people that were the cast. And when I say the cast, they weren't acting. They weren't trying to pretend they were Victorian. They were sending modern people to dress like it and live like it and see if they could earn money, see if they could survive without the welfare state. It was really eye-opening. But I remember one day I went in to do filming and they were furious, so angry and so agitated. I said, what on earth is wrong with you? you all, you've all got faces like thunder. And they said, oh, we filmed this thing this morning where people came slumming and they came into our rooms, they came into our boarding houses, they came into our courtyards and they filmed us. They acted like we weren't there. They didn't talk to us. And they were, even though they knew that this was the 2000s, even though they knew these people had, you know, were not really <laughs> laughing at them, it hurt them emotionally. It caused them so much pain. And in fact, one of the fathers of one of the families had to have counselling after doing that show for, I think it was three weeks, because it was just so awful not to be able to protect and help your family, not be able to protect and help his children and his grandchildren as he wanted to. So I think that gives you some idea of what it's like to be right there in London and to have people saying, where is this mysterious country that these strange and mysterious denizens live in? And you're thinking, hi, I'm right here. Can you not see me? But you're being cast adrift. You are being outcast by your own society and community. Mm. Mm. I will say, in, in I love that, that program. I watched it last year. Um, it's marketed in the United States as uh, Slum House, I think. I hope for any listeners of Unobscured who want to get a little more of that tangible feeling, uh, who want to try to experience some of the rhythms of Victorian working class life, uh, Slum House or the Victorian Slum, that program is brilliant for that. Um, so I really commend that to, to listeners. Go check it out. Give it a watch. It's, it's very, very worth it. In, in Striking a Light, Louise, you write... Um, that the socialist groups, which have been so well studied, um, they only represented a very small minority of the people who actually lived in the East End. And that membership was generally highest among the middle classes and men from more affluent sections of the working class. Um, and if most of the socialists or the radicals known to us today were middle class people, what can we actually say about the politics of East London's working classes and, and poor. And what's so interesting is that we've just gone ahead and assumed that working class people in the East End were not political, as if somehow 
just because you hadn't read Karl Marx cover to cover, the fact that you were starving and dying and being worked to death wouldn't wouldn't really occur to you. You wouldn't really realise unless somebody middle class came and told you. And even some historians that I greatly respect have written about that and said, you know, politics stirs them very little was the phrase that was used at the time about the working classes. They're not moved by politics. They're just so busy trying to get ahead, trying to get work, trying to live, that they will climb on each other. You know, they will do each other down in order to survive. And you could understand it, frankly, if that had been the case. Because working those hours, that struggle to survive, that struggle to feed your family, what does it leave you for political thinking? But what's so fascinating is it's not true at all. Working class people again and again have told us when talking about their childhoods that they were incredibly politicized. It tends to be assumed that literacy that being able to read is the be-all and end-all. And if they were illiterate, I've often been told this, you know, don't you think you make too much, Louise, about the poor being, don't you think you're romanticising them when you say that they were political? Because after all, they couldn't read or write. Well, humanity hasn't been able to read or write for a great deal of our history. And yet, you know, we've managed pretty well. And for example, the Irish community maintained a real sense of politicization through telling tales around the fireside. Literally, families would gather of an evening and they would, as one man called John Gibbons, whose reminiscences, unpublished reminiscences of his childhood, I read, said, we would tell the tale of Erin's wrongs. And they would talk about all the terrible things that the Brits had done in Ireland. And my goodness, they were enough to keep you going for several evenings, I would imagine. And he, they would talk about Robert Emmett, the Irish rebel who was executed and how he died. And somebody would recite his speech from the dock. And he said, how can we not grow up to be dreamers of the most romantic dreams? How could those people not become passionate about Irish home rule, about Irish affairs? How could they not become passionate about their people? And this was recreated with non-Irish people as well. I mentioned before that one docker's daughter remembered her dad taking them round for Sunday walks and saying, look at that beautiful building. Our people built that. And there were organisations like the Clarion Cycling Club. There was also a journal that was really widely read and Merry England, a wonderful book by the Clarion's Robert Blatchford, which people would read. And there was a tale that I read of a little girl saying, I remember that my dad would read to us from that, from Merry England. And my mum would shout up the stairs, those children should be in bed. It's past their bedtime. Stop reading to them. Let them go to sleep. And he would say, what I am telling them will do them much more good than sleep. So there was this awareness by parents that we have to politicise our kids. We have to give them a sense of class pride. Another um, 
reminiscence that I read was of a woman saying, well, we were told we were supposed to look up to our so-called betters. But, you know, my mum was was in service and she dusted the sideboard of old Lord Ponsonby Smythe and she knew what he was like. She had to pick up after him. We weren't impressed by these people because we knew from our parents, we were told that they were no better than us. And in fact, there are constant attempts to unionize. There are constant attempts to protest and to rebel by working people. It's just that they often get their skulls broken by the police and the armies when they try it. It's not that they don't try it. But then these stories also get misrepresented. There was an incident in 1886 that led to violence when a protectionist group, so a group that are supposedly representing working people, are speaking in Trafalgar Square and they're saying, we've got to keep these foreigners out of our British jobs and all that awful rhetoric that unfortunately is still with us. And this led to violence. This has been written about by historians saying, look, you see, you see, this is what working class people were like then. They were so ready to fight foreigners, they were so ready to be sort of borderline racist and xenophobic, and they were so ready to riot all the time. But actually, it doesn't take much research to prove that that whole thing was a front for employers' organisations. It was them who were up on the podiums in Trafalgar Square, speaking about the need to get rid of foreign workers and to fight foreign competition. It wasn't genuine working people. And in fact, genuine working people who were listening were pretty disgusted and fought back against those speakers. And that's what caused the violence. And yet, even comparatively recent historians have written about that as an example of these uneducated, selfish, apolitical poor people. But I would say you couldn't be apolitical and survive as a poor person in the East End of London. If you take politics in its widest sense, if you didn't have enough sense of solidarity to say, look, we're all in this together. We all need to help each other. We all need to make sure Mrs. So-and-so next door has got enough food because it could be us tomorrow. That very basic sense of, basic but important sense of networking and solidarity, people brought that into factories and women in particular brought their networks of support and solidarity into the new factories and the new industrial jobs. And why wouldn't they? And really, these Things get dismissed sometimes by the serious Labour historians. Oh, that's not really a form of politics. But I think it definitely, to my mind, it is. And that was really the basis for trade unionism, for modern trade unionism. It begins with this idea that we all need to help each other. We know who we know we have class enemies and we all need to unite to fight them. And a wrong to one is a wrong to all, if you like. That's a lesson that you learn pretty quickly in the back slums of the East End in 1888. Let's uh, jump forward a little bit. Um, what was it like to be Irish in London's East End? Um, what, what was distinctive about the Irish community there? Uh, what was that experience like and was it typical of the Irish experience in other places in London? Mm. Yeah, there's no one Irish experience in London, of course. 
but certainly it's a very different experience if you're arriving from Ireland extremely poor with perhaps nothing but the clothes you stand up in and settling perhaps around Spitalfields. That was always the zone of transmission. That was where people often began. Then if you're, say, an Irish lawyer or a playwright or if you're Oscar Wilde, you know, there's Irish people and Irish people at this time. But it was said that if there was one thing an English working person despised more than a policeman, it was an Irishman. So there were these awful divisions. Karl Marx commented on that. He said, oh, we have to stop this racist conception where workers don't unite together. They see the Irish as competition and they try and drive them out of the employment market. They need to unite with them. Isn't that always the problem? And it's also a problem for women workers that male trade unionists would see them as taking their jobs because they were forced to work for less. So we do see Irish people being accused of causing their own poverty. This happens with Jewish people as well. It happens with most waves of migrant workers. They're accused of bringing down wages. They're accused of causing overcrowding. To set against this, they do have really strong networks. So through culture, through music, through pubs, there are a lot of Irish pubs in London at this time, and they're very important to the political life of London. And through the church, Irish people are very united. And we see a lot of what they call chain migration, which means you go to a certain area because your friends are there. So your friends have settled in London, you come over and settle there. And we see entire streets becoming categorized as Irish that is an Irish area and from the 1700s we hear people saying yes in certain districts of London you won't hear English spoken at all people are speaking Irish or people are speaking Gaelic there's a priest who says because I speak Irish I'm really in demand for giving confession because most people can only get access to English priests so I'm working flat out dealing with all the Irish people and I never hear English spoken from morning to night and we also see in the 1700s horrible anti-Irish riots in which people are actually killed. It's, it's not written about very much, but there were some awful periods of xenophobia going to attack Irish homes. I mean, how terrifying must it have been? You know, for several days and nights, English people were told to put a candle in their window to show they weren't Irish. Otherwise, they could get their house pulled down. Irish pubs were attacked. Irish homes were attacked. Irish people were attacked. Apparently, an Irish person was shot and actually killed in Brick Lane in the 1700s. There's very little evidence of that. It's not written about very much. So Irish people are dealing with all of that. And there is a tendency, certainly from middle class commentators, to look down on them even more than they're looking down on the English working class. So we hear about, you know, the dirty Irish and the black Irish and all Irish are drinkers, all Irish are criminals. They're all tinkers. Terrible bias. Not helped by the fact that the Victorians, of course, we should never forget that the Victorians begin eugenics. You know, the Nazis really do a lot with it. We have to say they really pick up on it. But it's another wonderful thing that the British invented around this period. And one of the justifications 
for the conditions of poor working class Irish people was that the Victorians decided on no basis whatsoever, that they were a black race, a Negroid race, and therefore, of course, inferior to the only superior people who were white English upper class men. Coincidentally, considering a lot of the people that were writing this pseudoscience were white English upper class men. Mm -hmm. They just happened that they were the superior ones. So you're really up against it, I think it's fair to say, if you're Irish. But they do have the advantage of these strong networks and solidarity and also this politicisation that I've talked about. They are very politicised by what happens back home in Ireland, by their treatment at the hand of the British. And they come over here and they're very unenthusiastic about the British, just as much as we are about them. They're not grateful. People complain about this. You know, they're coming over here and they're not at all grateful. They don't like the English. I mean, how dare they? We're giving them a roof over their head. So they were already pre-politicised, if you like. And that is a great weapon to fight being othered and being demonised and dehumanised is your sense of self. And this is something with the Irish community that's quite remarkable, is that even three generations in, Londoners would say, I am Irish, even if they've never been to Ireland. They really maintained that sense of identity. And that was very important. That's how you survive, I suppose, when you're really up against it is by a sense of pride in your identity. Mm. When you're talking about um, politicized communities and political forces working on some of these groups and in these neighborhoods, um, would you describe the influence that uh, Fenian movements and the Fenian bombings of the 1880s had on Irish life in London at the time? Mm. Yes. Just as the community, I suppose, was getting a little bit more settled and a little bit more established, I wouldn't say massively accepted, but getting that way, there was, first of all, in 1867, there was the bombing at Clerkenwell Prison, which was to release Richard O'Sullivan Burke, who was an Irish rebel leader who was being held there. And unfortunately, it went horrifically wrong and six people were killed and it was working class people who suffered. They, they put gunpowder against the prison wall, but there were crowded you know, working class houses cheek by jail right up against the prison. And as Karl Marx remarked at the time, people had previously shown great sympathy for the Irish cause. And there was an awful lot of sympathy for it. But they will be driven into the arms of the government by this. You cannot expect the English proletariat to accept being blown up just because it believes in a political cause. So this did cause a lot of dissent within the Irish community as well. The cause was a good one, but yes, when you kill working class supporters, it's never going to be a good move. And then there were the 1883 bombs at train stations and at underground stations. And that's why Special Branch was set up, of course. So suddenly you have all these informants from the Irish community and within the Irish community. You know, you are the most suspect group in London. People write about the Irish at this time. Oh, they're all Fenian terrorists. Fenian was used as an insult against Irish people. There was an area of London around Gale Street that was known as the Fenian Barracks. And Charles Booth writes about a policeman telling him about the Fenian Barracks. And he says, men here are not human. They are wild beasts. 
if you try and arrest anyone, he said, from that area, they all unite together. They will barricade themselves in. They will throw anything they can get their hands on, furniture, anything at you. They will never allow one of their number to be arrested. And he says, not an Englishman nor a Scotchman would live among them. So here we are, even in the East End, which is being divided from the rest of London, even the working class, which is being divided from the rest of society, is dividing itself. And we're getting these divisions, these false divisions between Irish and English. And the Irish are coming to personify <clears throat> the worst and least respectable poor of all and all suspect, you know, all being suspected of terrorism. Mm. Of course, you write in striking a light that many of the matchwomen were Irish, and, you, and you've mentioned that again today. Um, you have a section of your first chapter dedicated to perceptions of women who worked in factories. And again, you've talked a little bit about the factory girl in the middle class imagination. What was the reputation of factory women in the neighborhoods where they lived? Ah, uh, yes. Now, that is a very different thing, of course. How posh London, how their so-called betters viewed them and how the locals viewed them is completely different. So taking the matchwomen as one example, because they are the largest pool of female so-called casual workers in the East End at that time, so they're quite a good example, they were so looked down upon by commentators, you know, a rough set of girls, their own employers said said that about them and people would write about them incredibly patronizingly or oh, they're always drunk and they're always consorting with men of the very worst type and they're also written about when they're not written about like that they're written about as children so match girls it's always match girls and they're written about being a little bit simple having no intelligence whatsoever so they're the lowest of the low really because they're eastenders and irish origin and industrially working women, factory girls, that is three massive strikes against you. This is appalling. You know, it's bad enough being a woman, really, in Victorian England, but insisting on being working class and Irish in an East Ender is really taking the proverbial. So the way they're looked at in their area, though, is completely different. It's so fascinating. You could get away with a lot of sins against the Victorian narrative if you were the right sort of woman. So if you were really gutsy, if you fronted it out, that's a really important term in the East End, fronting it out, you know, having the confidence, holding your head high and not taking any nonsense from anybody, having self-respect, I suppose, really. You could get away with an awful lot of stuff. You know, there were women who had lovers, which was supposed to be a terrible sin. And yet they were still a great standing in the community because they were just wonderful people, they were good to their friends, uh, they were the aunties and queens of the street, they were the midwives, they were the undertakers, they filled incredibly important functions. So whereas we are told that any woman who does anything immoral is completely outcast, nobody will speak to her, her reputation is ruined. That's not true at all. That's the middle class perception. And the poor were a lot less judgmental and a lot more flexible. And the match women were kind of really the cool girl gang in the neighbourhood, actually, or despite the way it's such a contrast between the way that the middle classes look down on them. They were the ones who 
knew all the musical songs of the day. I discovered that when I read a magistrate who lived in the East End complaining about, oh, these match women, they wake me up, you know, occasionally when they have enough money to go out, maybe on a bank holiday, they come back from the musicals and they're singing all the way home. They're singing Tarara, Boom Dia, knocked him in the old Kent Road and I'm trying to sleep. I've got caught in the morning and I'm being woken up by them. But when you think about what that means, you could only know the words of musical songs if you managed to get into those performances. And they were the hippest, coolest songs of the time. So it's like dropping bars from the latest grime artists, being able to recite those songs, being able to sing them walking arm in arm down the street. That's pretty cool. That makes you pretty cool. They also, something else I loved about them, which gave me a real clue to their personalities. And it's really common of working class people over the world, actually, not just in England at this period, and certainly not just in the East End, was that when they could go out, which was rare, but sometimes somebody, one of the better paid workers would stand treat, as it was called, and he would say, I'll pay for you all to have tea. And they'd be really excited. They might get a cup of tea in a cafe and jam on their bread. This was a real highlight, maybe even some cake. And when they got to go out, they were going to look their best as a matter of pride and partly as a retort to the people they knew were looking down on them. They were going to look absolutely dressed up to the nines and probably the tens when they were walking down the street. They couldn't afford it, though, on their own. They couldn't afford to buy the beautiful hats that every Victorian woman needed to be really cool. So they formed what they called feather clubs. And actually, a lot of factory women did this. The match women had a feather club. And what was it? It was a communal hat club. Feather club because the hats were so befeathered at the time. Entire flocks of poor little birds died to make these hats. And they would pay in to the club. And I presume that when there was enough money, Elsie would pop up to the milliners or perhaps somebody would make a hat. I don't know. But they would have these beautiful hats. So they knew when they walked down the bow road, when they promenaded down the bow road with their friends, singing these really, you know, up to the minute musical songs, they looked incredible. And that was a kind of political resistance, really. It was like, okay, you might want to look down on us, but look at us. We look bloody fantastic. And we know we do. And the descendants that I talked to were really good at explaining how these notions, these received notions that were forced on them from above were rejected and were turned around. And he said, I'm really glad you're writing about my grand and her friends because they were wonderful and nobody thinks they were. And I had to grow up with that. I had to grow up with these incredible powerhouse women, strong characters, brave, amazing, you know, did the impossible on a daily basis, fed huge families. And people treated them like dirt. And people would say they weren't ladies, but to us, they were. They were East End ladies. And that's so key, that distinction between woman and lady. Anyone can be a woman, but certainly not everyone, according to the Victorians, could be a lady. And a lady was an absence, really. What is a lady? Well, it's what she's not. She's not loud. She's not drunk. She's not sexy. She's not having a good time, really. She's just sitting quietly, as quiet and still as you can possibly be, as, as devoid of humanity as you can possibly be. It's no coincidence that the angel in the house, that an angel isn't 
human, is above humanity. But the EastEnders rejected this. They had their own much more liberated, I suppose. I mean, it sounds strange to talk about. I'm not suggesting that every docker was a rampant feminist in this period, but they had far more liberated conceptions and far more real conceptions of what a woman was than their supposed betters. Mm. What did working women in the East End think of the police? Did they have a relationship with the police that was antagonistic? Was there a was there a, a general class alignment of the London police at the time that was very evident? What can we say about that? This is kind of fascinating because the police had a healthy respect, shall we say, for working class women. And there were reasons for this. You hear policemen talking, sometimes commentators like Charles Booth will seek out the opinion of the police as sort of respectable authority figures who also know the working classes because they're from the working classes on the whole, about people like the matchwomen. And they will tell them, well, the matchwomen are very well respected in the area. They have a famous sense of unity. They settle all their disputes really quickly but if they have a dispute and you know you're working with people they get on your nerves if they have a dispute at work they can't resolve well let's just say they had a rather non-industrial relations approved method of sorting that out so this policeman said a ring will be formed they will fight like men and we as the police do not interfere so they'd have punch-ups if they really couldn't sort out a problem at work and the police would back off Isn't that interesting? The police were scared or certainly respectful of these incredibly tough working class women. And then one of the other tales that I was told was that in order to amuse themselves of an evening, of course, there wasn't much on telly because there wasn't telly. Working class people would observe the coppers who were parading around their neighbourhood and who would often go in pairs because famously we always hear, don't we, you know, you wouldn't patrol that neighbourhood with less than two of you because it was so dangerous and also dark. So they'd watch the coppers strolling around and they'd think, hmm, interesting. They're walking over a manhole there and that's quite a large manhole. I wonder what would happen if we removed that manhole cover. And it's dark and the coppers wouldn't see that. So one of their forms of fun was to remove the manhole covers, the poor coppers walking around, and they'd wait and see if one of them just dropped and ended up beneath the street down the manhole. And then, as if that wasn't bad enough, if they if they could, if they could get away with it, they'd sneak out and put the manhole cover back on. And leave the poor Bobby down there. Now, I don't think forever. I mean, I presume eventually his workmates got him out. Or I don't think they're still down there, skeletons of policemen below the streets of the East End. But I think this gives you an idea of the, shall we say, mischievous um, regard in which the East Enders held the police. Now, there wasn't a great deal of respect there because they saw the police on the whole as forces of the establishment. You know, they're the people that are on these damn slumming tours. So these are the people coming to your neighbourhoods, leading the knobs, the toffs, the posh people, laughing at us. They're being led by police. So how can you see them as being on your side when there are demonstrations and protests? Who's hitting you over the head with a truncheon? It's the police. So no, there isn't much class solidarity. There are some police at the time who say, well, we are trying to do good for our neighbourhood and you know we, we need a job we're not trying to 
um, oppress our working class neighbours. But no, I think it's fair to say that they're not incredibly well thought of by the people of the East End. When the matchroom strike happened, I was really interested to read in the local press that battalions of police were rushed into the area. I love this idea of women on strike and young women, girls in many cases, being so terrifying to the establishment <laughs> that all police leave is cancelled. Oh my God, keep an eye on these dangerous match women. So police are rushed in. But I think another reason is probably the local police were not keen at all on trying to police the match women strike. They were like, no, it's fine. Let, let, let people from outside who don't know what they're dealing with do it. And we can see the spirit of the match women. There was an event in the 1870s when match workers were protesting against a proposed tax on matches, which would have been really bad for their trade. Now, I have to say that their employers were really happy with them, encouraged them to protest, actually. So it's not a complete sort of revolutionary act. But they marched to Parliament and they're very young, a lot of the people marching, and they have banners that they've made themselves to say to MPs, do not, don't bring this tax in. Now, the police kettle them and I think this might have been one of the first examples ever of kettling when the police surround protesters and they try to snatch their banners and there's an all all out free-for-all punch-up by the side of the Thames. There are match women throwing rocks at the police, very well aimed apparently as well. They're, they're finding their targets and breaking through, refusing to surrender their banners. Banners are a very important thing in protest at this period. It's like an army. You don't let the other side take your banners. And there's some of them managed to get free and they managed to get as far as Parliament to present their petition. But that gives you an idea as well. These are children on the whole. But my goodness, they can be fierce and they can fight. And the police, you know, the police know it. Mm -hmm. Let's step forward a little in time, but follow those girls, those women who protesting in the 70s. Um, but. What was the context in which they were working? Let's hear a little bit more about the factory. Let's hear a little bit more about Bryant and May. How significant a company was it? And, you know, in the book, you've, you've described that that company had an, an irresistible rise from Quaker grocers to powerful and ruthless cartel by 1888. Can you offer that story kind of in, in brief? Mm, they're really the Victorian dream, Bryant and May. There is an original Mr. Bryant and a Mr. May, and they start out as grocers. They're not particularly rich. They're trying a number of things, trying their hand at various things, soap making, candle making, all trying to make their fortune. And eventually they come to London because they're from Plymouth originally, and they lease this factory site on the Fairfield Road very near the Bow Road, one of the most important roads in the East End. It was three factories. That's how large their ambition is, really. And they construct this incredible Gothic castle, is what it looks like from the outside, in which to make matches. They become this huge, huge firm. They're a household name. Matches are hugely important, of course, at the time, because you've got no lighting, you've got no heating, You've got no fire, you've got no hot water, you've got no hot food, let alone lighting your fag, your cigarettes or your pipes or your cigars. So matches are everywhere and they're an absolute essential for every household. And they very quickly, because it is a low 
investment industry, huge profits, very little money to put in. They become massive within a generation. The original Mr. Bryant and Mr. May are still alive when this firm really carries all before it. And they're incredibly in with the Liberal Party, they're in with politicians, they're very significant, they become huge exporters as well. And they have factories all over the country, it's not just in the East End, although this is a very significant one in the East End. And they're so important to the government that the government will tailor its policies to Bryant and May. So, for example, the ghastly white phosphorus that they use to make matches gets banned in the rest of Europe quicker than it does in England because we don't want to upset Bryant and May. That's how important they become. The original Mr. May, who's the nicer of the two, Francis May, I think, gets forced out by the Bryants. We don't know why. I'd love to know why. Something happens. He alludes, Mr. May, to this terrible thing the Bryants have done that he can't forgive. I would love to know. Love a bit of gossip, but we don't know. The sons of the original Bryant take over and they are absolutely ruthless, capitalistic bastards in a very modern sense, too. They've got a huge regard for public relations so they're constantly showing rich people and journalists around the factory and saying look at our lovely working conditions obviously they're making everything look good for those days the girls are dressed up in their finest clothes that they probably got out of the pawnbroker so they're really aware of their public image and they just become second to none they're one of the most successful countries in the company so people assume that conditions must be good. It must be all right working for them because look how rich they are. They become a firm in 1884 and very quickly shareholders are getting 20% return on their investment. That's massive. Also, shareholders are offering liberal MPs because they're very tied in with the Liberal Party and clergymen. So again, people think, well, they must be a fairly kindly respectable company because look at all these good men who are very concerned about the poor who are investing in them and it's really not until this strike that the matchman managed to show us what's really going on behind this facade that looks like this gothic castle with gatehouses and turrets women are working 12-hour days and starving to death women are contracting necrosis from white phosphorus their jaws are rotting and decaying while they're still alive but it takes this huge event that the strike becomes to show us this because we don't want to see it we want to assume Brian Tamer this lovely success story and we all have their matchboxes at home and they have these wonderful patriotic designs on their matchboxes and it's all very imperial and it's all very royal we want to believe that they are good employers, much as we ever bother thinking about match, match workers, we want to believe that they're good, but they're not. And they're also buying up rival firms at an incredible rate. So when people hear about conditions and they want to boycott Bryant and May, they say, right, well, we will buy our matches from Bells or from this other companies instead. They don't realise that Brian and May are chuckling away, go and go on then, because we actually own those companies. Sometimes they would buy out rivals who would maintain their own name. So, you know, really, it looks like David versus Goliath. It looks like the Matarin have no chance. They've done everything to ensure their position. They've not only managed to push wages down for no reason, doesn't need to be done, but wages are lower 
1888 than they were in 1878, just because why not? You know, more profits for the shareholders. And they've done this relentless PR campaign. They're in with government. Who can possibly stop them? Who's possibly going to take them on? They think no one. But of course, they've underestimated the women who are right under their noses. Mm. Can you describe what kind of life was possible on a Bryant and May wage? And how did it compare to other sorts of work available in the in the East End? It was lower paid, um, but Bryant and May didn't even know that. That's what's so fascinating. They just paid as little as they could get away with. During the strike, when people start saying, you are paying your women a very low rate, even the best pay, because everyone got different weights of pay, depending on what they did, how, how long they'd been there, how good they were at the job. But you are paying your women way below the average and Brian Tomei say, we absolutely are not. But behind this scenes, if you look in their company correspondence file, they're desperately writing to the other factories going, what do you pay? What do you pay? Can you please tell us what you pay? And they find out that, yes, pretty much everywhere is paying more than they're paying. So very little life at all. You couldn't really call it a life. When you look at what some women were earning, they'd be earning a few shillings, four shillings a week. The rent of one room would be two shillings. And then you've got your bills and then you've got food. So you are just about scraping by, if that. And they're constantly having to rely on each other. They're in and out of the pawnbrokers like a revolving door. You know, like wonderful song, Pop Goes the Weasel. Um, up and down the city road, in and out the easel, Pop Goes the Weasel. What that means is you're popping, you're pawning your weasel, which wasn't dressmaker's iron. So working women are constantly having to pawn even the tools of their trade to get them to the end of the week until they get paid again. And that was certainly the case for the match women, pawning everything they could, their clothes, their boots, their hats, probably didn't have jewellery, but anything they did have, and helping each other, lending to each other, constantly supporting each other. So when they were sacked by Brian and May for anything, oh, God, it could be anything, you know, getting pregnant if you weren't married, laughing, um, any kind of insubordination, you would just be sacked. And they would literally pass the hat, and it was a hat and probably a beautiful feathered one for each other. So life was impossible, and it was starvation rates unless you were helped out. And even those who did have the support of their friends were so malnourished by 1888, that when Annie Besant comes along and and meets the women for the first time, she notices they're very small and frail, even for working class women at this time, who are not healthy and robust, don't have a chance to be. But they're particularly small because these low wages, Bryant and Mayer pushed the wages down, so they're lower than they were 10 years before. So you're a young girl, you're getting that terribly below starvation rate of pay when you should be hitting puberty. So you're just not developing properly. You're just so malnourished that you're unable to grow and develop as you should have done. So really very little life was possible. Yet they still, you know, girls just want to have fun. Still they would enjoy life whenever they could. Their feather clubs, standing treat, going out to tea, whenever they could, they would still enjoy life. So, you know, they weren't as beaten down and as oppressed as their employers like to think. And as you think they might have been, they had this incredible spirit and they had pride in being match women. They decided to turn that around. Other people may look down on us, but we are proud. We are the match girls. Who the hell are you? 
and they were proud of their identity. And still, some of them remained friends, you know, for 20, 30, 40 years after they'd finished working in the factory and still went drinking together (laughs) whenever they could. Can you describe the kinds of work needed to produce a a Bryant and May match? Mm. Yes, it wasn't supposed to be skilled work, but in fact, the way that we decide what is skilled and what is not is pretty arbitrary. We generally decide that if men do it, it's skilled. Even when a job has been female, when it becomes male, suddenly we decide that it's skilled. But they had to work incredibly fast and incredibly accurately, not just to earn their wages, but to avoid being fined because Brian and May would put illegal fines onto their wages if they made the the slightest thing wrong, if the the matches caught fire in the process. So you would initially have wood that was divided into splints, which would go on to make the matches. Each splint was divided into two to make a match. These were set into a frame. The frame was then dipped into the white phosphorus, this horrible toxic chemical, and that was what made these matches so incredibly flammable. They were then left to dry, they were then cut down, and they were then boxed. And the fillers, by the way, the people who filled the boxes were incredible. You could throw any kind of different box or any kind of different match at them and they would hardly stop. Their fingers were just moving all the time. They knew exactly how many matches to grab to fit into a box. They were just incredibly skilled women. But a note on white phosphorus. People who've heard a little bit about the match may have heard of Fossy Jaw, this ghastly industrial disease. The thing about it was it's completely unnecessary. Brian and May didn't have to use it. Red phosphorus was available and it was safe, but it was more expensive. It was more difficult to produce. It took a little longer to produce. So why should they bother? They claimed they didn't know about the effects of Fossy Jaw. They claimed they didn't have any cases of it in their factory. They absolutely did know and they absolutely did have people dying of it. And what would happen was that if you went into the area of the factory where the phosphorus was, you would immediately smell the ghastly fumes of phosphorus. It absolutely stinks phosphorus. And you would perhaps be sick straight away. People would vomit immediately on breathing it in or they would pass out. That was really common. Women had to go outside and and faint and then go back to work. If it caught hold of your teeth, as the women said, if it got into your jawbone, often through holes in your teeth, because you couldn't afford a dentist in those days, it would start to rot and decay your jawbone. So you're still alive, but you've got these horrible, separating, stinking abscesses, sorry if anyone's just eaten, in your gum, and pieces of bone, your own bone, you're spitting them out, they're working their way out through these abscesses. It was a horrible disease, particularly because sufferers couldn't always live under the same roof as their families. Loved ones couldn't stand it. You know, you're living ten to a room. People just couldn't stand the smell. So later, factory inspectors will find match women living on the outskirts of towns and cities, almost like lepers in the final stages of the disease. And match men as well. There were match dippers who were often men, and they suffered from it as well. As if all of this wasn't bad enough Brian and May constantly made it worse and one of the reasons they made it worse was they should have provided a separate dining room so that women could eat out of the 
fumes, eat their own food, by the way. Brian and May weren't going to provide them with a single crumb, but perhaps their own vicious stale bread if they were lucky that they brought in for home. So they would set it on their workbench until it was time to eat and then cram it down as quickly as they could when they could. And if you imagine the phosphorus particles in the air have settled now on your lunch, so you've got this deadly seasoning. And so it's immediately in your mouth and it's got a way in to your gums. And Brian and May's attitude to this was complete indifference. If they saw a woman who seemed to be coming down with the foss, perhaps your jawbone would start to swell and you'd look very toothachey and a bit mumpsy, they would sack you. So the women would cover up their faces with kerchiefs. And even though they knew this disease was deadly, it didn't always kill you and it didn't kill you as quickly as starvation. So that was the kind of awful calculations and accommodations that they had to make. While Brian and May were literally living in, oh, the most incredible country estates, you know, mansions isn't in it. One of them was the uh, Sheriff of Buckinghamshire. I always think it should have been the Sheriff of Nottinghamshire, like in Robin Hood, because they were such terrible people. But they're making a fortune. That's the awful thing. While this is happening, the company is absolutely flourishing. Would you describe um, from 1882 the Gladstone statue and and what uh, what kind of reaction it provoked? Now this is absolutely fascinating, and this really gives us a flavour of the spirit of the match women and their eye for a good political gesture. So Brian and May, as I said, were very well in with the Liberal Party and Gladstone was always being prime minister during this period. He's prime minister for several different terms. So the ultimate act of sucking up, my goodness, talk about ass kissing. Brian and May decide they will build a statue of William Gladstone and they will build it on the Bow Road. And it's actually gesturing with the right hand towards their factory. Such humility. You know, this is Gladstone (laughs) saying, look at this wonderful factory. So they decide they're going to build it. They could have paid for it themselves. They could have paid for a thousand statues themselves, I'm sure, very easily. But again, why would you when you can make your workers pay? So what they do is to take involuntary deductions, forced deductions from the girls already incredibly low pay to pay for this statue. Women not happy, you can understand. Women not pleased at all with this. They don't have any say in it. And then they announce the foremen who were the the sort of line managers, I suppose, and often quite violent. They would hit the women and, and they were really unpleasant to them. And they were real company men. They'd lived on site. They had lovely cottages on site. So they were really bought and paid for. Came in and said, oh, you're all very lucky. You're getting half afternoon off tomorrow. You're getting half the day off to go and see this statue being unveiled. And the women are like, well, are we being paid for that? And they say, no, you're very lucky. You're getting some time off work. And the women say, you know, you can stuff that basically where the sun doesn't shine. We don't want no holidays on those terms. Quite rightly, they want to be paid. And the foreman say, look, if you want to work here, you're going to turn up in your best bib and tucker, your best hat, and you're going to be polite and you're going to stand and you know, applaud politely while this statue in, right in the middle of the bow road, it couldn't be more prominent, is unveiled. So the match women have a plan. They say, all right, then we'll be there. And they are there. And you can just imagine the scene. The great and the good are gathered because Brian and May never 
missed an opportunity to show off. So all the bright boys and their wives and their children and their shareholders and prominent liberals are all there and their speeches and it's all tremendous. And finally, this statue is unveiled. And then the match women move as one. They run up to the podium of the statue, shouting out, our blood paid for this statue. And they prick their fingers, which must have been with hat pins, because what else would you do it with? They had these incredibly long, sharp, vicious hat pins, which they used as self-defense when they had to in their beautiful hats. Prick their fingers and held their hands up and dripped their blood onto the statue and said, our blood paid for this which is just incredible. It's a shame it's not recorded anywhere, but I would imagine the Bryants must have been incandescent. Talk about ruining their moment. But it was absolutely brilliant. And that if that's not political and if that's not resistance, I don't know what is, because they waited for their moment and they just timed it beautifully. <laughs> uh, so let's start talking about uh, who some of these who some of these women were, and one especially. Let's talk about Mary Driscoll. Um, who was Mary Driscoll? Mary Driscoll was only 14 at the time of the strike, but that wasn't one of the, that wouldn't have been one of the youngest girls. She's in, if anyone's seen the, the most famous photograph of the women, well, they're actually standing outside the factory and they're looking into the camera. They look very nervous and very pale. She's the tallest woman at the back wearing a hat. His granddaughter came up to me and said, I think that's my grandmother. Now, she was born in 1874. Both her parents were Irish and had come over from Ireland. She started working when she was a very young girl. And she was really prominent in the factory. She was very well respected. And her granddaughter told me that although she was quiet, she was quite a reticent woman. She had what Joan called an Irish temper and she absolutely took no nonsense. So later in life, when one of the women in her street is being assaulted by her husband, it's Mary who goes out there with the poker from the fireplace and chases him down and tells him to stop beating up his wife. And at the time of her strike, the strike, not just Mary, but her sister, Paul, also known as Mog, because people do very strange things with names in the Victorian period, and also known as Margaret, is working there as well. And in the picture, Paul has her hand on Mary's shoulder and I've seen pictures of these two going right towards the ends of their lives where they always stand like that. They're so close and so fond of each other that one's always got their hand on the other one's shoulder. But Mary had an incredibly hard life. She married a dock labourer and that's really common as well. Matchwomen and dockers tended to marry each other. Not surprisingly, they lived in the same streets and houses. They were all pretty much Irish heritage they had all those connections they were the casual workers of the east end you know the, the, the docks were a huge employer of men the matchworks were a huge employer of women but she had a really hard life with him he was an alcoholic and he was violent occasionally as well and in fact when she was pregnant once during one of her pregnancies he knocked her down the stairs and she miscarried and was extremely ill afterwards when Thomas eventually died, it was on the docks, although there were stories that he'd actually got into a fight. So it wasn't really an industrial accident. However, Mary finally got a stroke of luck. 
because she got compensation because of the Docker strike, which had followed on from her own strike, conditions were better and there was workers' compensation available. So this made a huge difference to her. And instantly, she was incredibly sensible and went and bought herself a shop. Now, that sounds really fancy, doesn't it? Owning a shop. But shops at that time were tiny. They could be quite whole in the corner affairs. They could be just front rooms of little houses on East End streets. But she eventually owned two shops, a corn chandler's, like a general grocer's, and a cat's meat shop. Now, when I say cat's meat shop, people often say, oh, my God, were, were they that poor? <laughs> were people eating cats? Well, no, not as far as we know, not on the whole. This was meat for cats because people, even though they were poor, they wanted to have pets and they still loved animals. So they would buy the cheapest cuts of meat for cats. She was an amazing shop owner, according to her granddaughter, Joan. She said that although she never learned to read or write, my God, could she add up. She would know at any time she keep a running total in her head of exactly what was in the tills, exactly how much should be in the tills of either shop at any one time. And when the aunts, when her daughters would want to sneak out on dates, she'd be, where are you going? You're supposed to be working in the shop. So really everything was dedicated to this family business. She did reasonably well for herself in that regard. But she was also so interesting political to the extent of being a huge fan of the Irish rebels and her granddaughter Joan said that whenever she was in drink when she'd had a gin she did enjoy a gin she would sing Irish rebel songs so she would sing the bold Robert Emmett and she had pictures of Michael Collins from the 1916 uprising much later in her life obviously and Robert Emmett and she didn't own much but those were never pawned or sold those were taken with her to every house that she lived in. Now, she enjoyed the gin to an extent that she had a mother-in-law, the, the mother of her cruel and abusive husband, who she didn't get on with either. And she took out a small life insurance policy on her ma-in-law. And when mother-in-law died, she was so delighted, she had a party and she spent all of that life insurance money on gin. She was the most amazingly strong woman. She survived to the blitz of World War II. And Mary remembers her telling the story that when the bombs were falling, one of Mary's daughters had a baby. What a terrifying time to be giving birth, but she gave birth. And Mary ran through the streets with this grandchild in her arms. Goodness knows what the new mum thought about this in order to get her baptised because she was Catholic and it was really important to her to get this baby baptised. Joan absolutely adored Mary. She was the matriarch of the family. Absolutely no question about that. And because Joan's own mum was ill, Mary basically brought her up to the point where she adored her grandmother so much that her own mother would say, well, she has got her faults, you know, she's not perfect. But the accommodation she was living in, Mary Driscoll was a very fastidious woman. She was very house proud where she could be. But she was living in a house with black beetles all over it, with no toilet, with no running water, toilet out in a courtyard, a shared toilet, horrible. And when one of her daughters moved slightly out of the East End into one of the new 
semi-detached houses, Mary was, for the first time in her life, absolutely speechless. She just stared at this house, very, very small house, you know, two up, two down, but with its own toilet and its own bathroom. And she said, oh, my goodness, this is a palace. And she was so pleased that her own children were doing better than she had done. And she died finally um, during World War II. And her granddaughter, Joan, was in the women's army and had to plead to get leave to go home and see her beloved grandmother in her last moments. And she was furious with her sergeant who didn't want to give her leave. And she said to her, it's only your grandmother. And Joan said, she might seem like only a grandmother, but she's all the world to me. And just just the most incredible woman. There's one little story that you tell in the book about uh, her attitude toward the Salvation Army in the East End when she was young. Do you want to retell that little anecdote? Yes. She was not stupid. There were no flies on Mary. She was a very clever woman. And like all East End mums, she did whatever she had to do to survive. And the Salvation Army, the Sally Ann, was some of the people that would do good work amongst the poor and crucially ran soup kitchens and would give out soup and give out free food and Mary but only if you were you know a good Protestant they were not in the business of giving it out to Jewish people or Catholic people so Mary trained all her children to sing Salvation Army hymns and they would go along to these soup kitchens, sing these hymns, you know, passionately pretend to be religious. The Salvation Army he would be terribly impressed and they would get their free soup. <laughs> oh. Now, what sort of work did Mary do for Bryant and May? So she worked in um, she and her sister both worked in the key workshops for Bryant and May and throughout their careers there did various kind of jobs so they would be working in the bookstores they would be filling the match boxes with matches and also doing cutting down and it was all very arduous because it was all done standing you had to stand at your workbench you weren't allowed to sit down and it was at least a 12-hour day you weren't supposed to talk And you weren't supposed to laugh or joke with your fellow factory hands. And then, as I mentioned before, there was this business of burnt. The matches dipped in white phosphorus were incredibly flammable. I mean, obviously, matches are supposed to be flammable, but these were dangerously so. What they called Lucifer matches, which were people's favorite matches at the time, because you didn't have to buy a whole box and carry it around, which is quite an expensive thing to buy. You could just buy a few matches and carry them with you and strike them anywhere. They were called strike anywhere matches. So men used to apparently like to show off to the ladies by striking them on the flies of their trousers and on their boots. I don't know if that would have impressed a woman then. I'm not sure it would now. But they were prone to catching fire in the process. Absolutely not the workers' fault, and yet they would be fined for it. So, you know, it was really grim and arduous work. Who was Martha Robinson and, and, and how old was she at the time of the strike? Martha Robertson was the grandmother of one of my best witnesses and friends, I'm glad to say. I became very friendly with her grandson, Ted Lewis, a wonderful man, and only died a couple of years ago. And she was born only in 1882. 
So how on earth could she have been working in 1888? But she was. She was making matches for Brian to May. And she was such a matriarch in her family that we do have a wonderful record that was recorded by the family. They wrote down some of her reminiscences. And thank God they did. You know, this is a historian's dream, isn't it? I was like, give me that book. <laughs> I kept borrowing it and looking at it and finding more things in it. It was handwritten with photographs as well. But it was a scrapbook, really. But it was really wonderful um, memoir of the family. So she would get up as a six-year-old. I always tell my son this, you know, when he doesn't feel like doing his homework or doesn't feel like helping around the house. Saying, you could have been working from the age of six, my lad. She'd get up at five in the morning and lay, sweep out the fireplace and lay the fire for the family. She was one of six children then, later another three, so she became one of nine. She would look under the stairs where the shoe collection, the family's shoe collection was, because you didn't have your own pairs of shoes. It was just whatever you could find. You know, you might find a shoe in the street and bring it home and try and make it fit by stuffing it with newspaper because shoes were so expensive. She tried to find a vaguely matching pair, pad them out if she had to, and off she'd walk to the factory. She would pick up everything she needed from Bryant and May to make the matchboxes, so the cardboard, and she would have to buy her own paste and come home and make as many of the boxes as she could and then take them back to the factory and get paid. So she'd get paid like on for piecework. And then she'd walk home, six years old again, I have to stress, and buy bread for the family. So if she didn't do that, she wasn't feeling well one day, they didn't get to eat. So it is the most incredibly responsible position. And she got married to James Lakin. And he was a rifleman in World War One. She was still working at Bryant and May then, sometimes in the factory. Between children, people generally would work in the factory. And then when you had a new baby, you might switch to making matchboxes again at home. And he went missing. He was missing in action, presumed dead. And Martha had three children by then, and she was one of these incredibly well-respected women in the community and in the street. She was the midwife. She was the one you'd call if someone died. She would help you lay out the dead. Because of that, she was so well-respected that the army came to her because they had a problem. They had a number of soldiers who'd been so badly wounded in the horrors of World War I that they were unidentifiable. They were alive, just about but they were impossible to identify. They couldn't speak. They'd lost all their identity tags. There was a whole ward of them. And so they brought in women in good standing in the neighbourhood to help, if they could, identify some of their neighbours. It's just absolutely bizarre, isn't it, that the army could not have known who these people were. And she went around with her sons and she was drawn to one man in particular who was just completely bandaged from head to toe. I picture it being like the invisible man. You know, she can just about see his eyes and that's all. And he can't speak. He's just sort of making noises. But she feels drawn to him for some reason. And he's trying to make eye contact with her. And she suddenly says, Jim, is that you? And she realizes that, yes. It's her husband who was supposed to be dead. And she fainted. She fainted into the arms of her sons. And then she had to look after him. Now, 
forget about any kind of help to do that. Don't forget no NHS, no National Health Service, no benefits whatsoever. She's just expected whilst working, whilst looking after her kids, to look after this man as well, who's completely deformed and disfigured, by the way. He's had half his face blown away. And in photographs, it's bad. The, the deformity is really bad. And it must have been very difficult for him to even eat. And he was never the same again. They went on to have three more children together. But he really was never the same person. He was very, I suppose, depressed and probably had what we'd now call PTSD, you know, post-combat stress. So he was really a miserable bugger, I think. And he would just sit in the corner and shout at the kids. That's what everyone remembers of him. But she stayed with him until he died. And she did marry again. She married a, a long-standing sweetheart of hers and had a much happier second marriage until he died as well. But what a character she was. She was absolutely one hell of a force. And her grandson, Ted Lewis, told me what she was like. He said, well, we go out drinking because he, again, like Joan Harris, adored his grandmother and spent an awful lot of time with her as a boy. And when he was old enough to drink and they'd go to the pub together, he said she was always the same, Martha. She was really artful. She was really cunning. You'd say to her, oh, can I get you a drink? And she'd say, oh, no, 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 dear. No, 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 no. You, you, you keep your money. And she'd make you insist. Oh, no, 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 Gran, I'll buy you a drink. Oh, all right then, dear. God bless you. So he'd always end up paying for the drinks. But if there was a fight in the pub, and there often were fights in the pub, she could fight back. Even as an old lady, he remembered once she'd had a hip operation and he took her out. It was her first time out in public since she'd had this operation. And they were in a pub. And it all started to kick off. So she heaved herself up from her chair and she said, right, Ted, prop me up in the corner. Give me my stick and I'll bloody take all the buggers on. <laughs> and she did as well. And even to when she was ill and she was um, in bed in her house, friends would come and see her. She was always she always had open out house when she was a younger woman. People would come back from the pubs with her and play the piano. And it sounds such a cliche, you know, round the old Joanna, the old Cockney's having her knees up. But, you know, these cliches come from somewhere. They really did. She always managed to pay the bills and keep a good roof over their head. And Ted said this was because she got about a bit. So she had a lot of lovers, basically. And I think the landlord might have been one of them because he would visit and say, uh, you're supposed to have only three people in here and you seem to have about seven or eight. They're always new children. But she'd managed to charm him somehow so they, they didn't get evicted. And finally, when she was dying, her room was always crowded because she was still holding court. That many people would come and visit her. And she always said that she didn't need an alarm clock because from where she was in bed, she could hear a man who sold pots and pans, a street trader, who'd walk down the road at about seven in the morning with his barrow. And she said, Do you know, love, there's a dodgy manhole cover and he always hits it, that silly bugger. He always goes over it and he loses the lot. I can hear his whole his whole wheelbarrow, his whole barrow, everything falling off it. And she would laugh herself sick at this. I wonder the poor sod's got anything left to sell. And she said that was better than an alarm clock. And that was what always woke her up in the morning. So, again, there's just this incredible spirit. She when she was even though she was often without food, she would always make sure that the children ate and later her grandchildren. She had ducks 
in her tiny little backyard. And when Ted visited, he'd say, what are we having for dinner, Grandma? And she'd always look at him and smile and say, duck. And he'd think, oh, no, she's eating the ducks. We're eating the ducks. That's terrible. And she was just winding him up because then he realised after a couple of years, hang on a minute, there's always the same number of ducks out the side, out the back. She was just using them for eggs. And really, they were probably eating faggots, really cheap cuts of meat or something completely different. So, you know, she's the archetypal, I suppose, woman who just has on the surface, on paper, such a terrible life and goes through so much, but still manages to be a community leader and a real force, not just within her family, but in her wider streets and neighbourhood too, you know, a highly respected queen of the East End. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the strike itself. What were the events that kicked off the walkout and how did the strike committee form? Mm. I really had to dig to work this out because when it came to it, all I knew was that there had been a strike and that it had been led from the outside. So Obviously, because of that, we had no details about the real strike because it was supposed to have been a case. These women were just told to go on strike by the middle classes. But what actually happened is so much more fascinating. Annie Besant was this middle class journalist and Fabian, a kind of socialist society that George Bernard Shaw was a member of, too. And she was at a Fabian meeting in June of 1888 and heard someone speak about the terrible conditions that working women particularly experienced in the East End and the terrible exploitation. She didn't know enough about the match women to realise that the speaker was actually talking about box makers, the match box makers, the home workers who worked in their homes. She assumed, oh, well, there's a Brighton May factory in Fairfield Road, it must be them. So she thought, well, I'll go and see if that's true. She wasn't convinced that it was. She went down and she waited until some of the women came off shift, they, they worked different shifts, and came out of the gates and onto the Bow Road. And she stopped them and said, I'm a journalist, I would like to talk to you about your conditions. It was that from this that we know everything that we do know about their conditions, from what those women told her about the fossy jaw, about the fines, about the fact that they were earning less now than in 1888, 1878, and the wonderful story of the statue. This all came out in that initial interview. She went back and wrote it up. Really hard-hitting piece called White Slavery in London. And now there we can hop back to the maiden tribute to modern Babylon and this kind of obsession with the sexual exploitation of working class women, because white slavery was one of the phrases used to to refer to that. It's a very good title. I think also I wonder if Annie Besant wasn't having a pop at one of the Bryants who'd been named Wilberforce Bryant after William Wilberforce, the abolition campaigner. And I wonder if she wasn't having a go because she's basically saying to Bryant and May, you treat these people actually worse than enslaved people because enslaved people at least are usually fed, you know, just enough so they can do the work, probably not well, but they are usually fed and housed. And your women and girls don't even have that. They have to pay out of these terrible wages, terribly low wages, 
after you find them and the wages have gone down even further for all of that as well. And it was meant to be incredibly hard hitting. And it was. And to make sure that Brian and May knew about it, she telegrammed them and said, please do buy my paper, which is called The Link, a socialist journal. Please do buy it. I think there's an article you're going to be very interested in. And of course, they did buy it and were incandescent with rage. What she hoped was not for a strike. There's no mention of that at all in white slavery in London, despite the fact she's been called a strike leader. And in fact, one of the first things I was able to do, thanks to Bryanton May, was to look at the initial, the original article, White Slavery in London, because it was in those boxes I looked at in the archive and they'd ripped it out. It looked like it had been angrily ripped out of the paper. It was torn and thrown into the archives. But I then looked at the whole edition of that paper in the newspaper library, and it was quite illuminating. She'd written a little bit further on about the idea of unionising the casual poor, the very poor, the underclass, women like this. And she actually said, consider the women of Brian to May that I wrote about in another column. And she's arguing against unionising them, by the way. It would be impossible because... If they tried to go on strike, they would just be sacked. And there's such high unemployment in East London that all their bosses are going to do is to hire someone else. It just wouldn't work. She's saying this is not the way we do it, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? A strike leader arguing against strikes. Hmm. Well, you might think perhaps she's being tactical. She doesn't want the employers to know what she's up to. But in fact, the Fabian Society were really against strikes. Um, George Bernard Shaw bitterly complains about strikes and what they cost the economy. What they want is a much more respectable reform. They want the upper echelons of labour, the labour aristocracy, as they're called then, to be the ones who are in trade unions because, you know, they're, they're proper people with top hats. They might be working class, but my goodness, at least they're decent people, not like these underclass proles. We don't really want anything to do with them. So. She was absolutely typical of her class of socialist in suggesting that striking was a terrible mistake. So then Brian to May get this article and they are furious. But rather than what she thinks they're going to do, which is to sue her. And that's what she wants. She thinks, right, they'll sue me. I'll go to court and defend myself. She's done this before. And this gives me a forum. This will be reported in the papers forum for my message. I can then say these workers are being treated terribly and I can advise people to boycott Brian to May. The thing about that is she's not talking to working class people, she's talking to consumers. That's middle class to middle class over the heads of the workers. But in fact, Brian to May threaten to sue, but they never do. They probably know they haven't got a leg to stand on actually. What they do is to gather together the workers give them pre-printed statements, which are laid around in every workroom by the foreman, which pre-prepared. And they say, you know, we love working for Brian to May. They're wonderful employers. We don't mind about the Fossey Jaw. No, didn't actually say that. But this is the idea. They're supposed to say this journalist has lied. Nothing she said is true. We couldn't be happier. And they know they'll be sacked if they don't sign those papers. And they need their jobs. They need them desperately. But they refuse. Every single one of these women, I'm so proud of them, refuses to sign. And when the foreman come back into the room, 
there are these blank sheets of paper and they are absolutely livid. So what are the employers going to do next? Well, employers um, haven't been a trade unionist. I can say they do the absolutely typical thing and they pick on one young girl, one worker who's very popular with the others. And they sack her on a pretext. They're clever enough not to do it because they think she's one of the ones who's spoken to Besson, but I think she probably is. They sack her and say she's not doing her work properly. Out she goes. Now, talk about underestimating your workforce. As one, the women lay down their tools, wipe their hands on their aprons and stream out of these imposing gates of the Fairfield Works Match Factory onto the Fairfield Road and onto the Bow Road. What do they do then? Well, if they were these apolitical people who, you know, weren't educated and didn't really realise what their conditions were or that they were being exploited, well, what they have done? They would have presumably gone, oh, blimey, Eliza, we've gone on strike by mistake. What shall we do now? What are we like? And I don't know, gone down the pub or something. But they didn't. They swung into action. They had an election there at the gates and they elected six women from all the major significant um, workshops within the factory, one from each, to go back in and put their demands. So instantly they walk back in and they confront the directors. I can just imagine how this went down and said, right, we'll come back, but only if you let us form a union. Blimey, they were not, Brian and May were not expecting that. And they immediately widened their demands. They didn't just say, we want that girl reinstated. They said, we want a union. And I'll tell you another thing while we're here. We want a separate dining room to eat our dinners in, to eat our bread in, because they knew about Fossey Jewel. Brian and May told them to do one. I can imagine the language must have been pretty strong, because they would have been outraged. How dare you? You know, how dare you, underclass women, how dare you tell us? what to do so back out the women go and they tell their colleagues no go we're going to have to strike and as everyone else comes on shift they gradually pull all this workforce out and it's a huge workforce by the way we have 1400 people on strike by the end of the day now what do you do you don't have access to the press you don't have twitter or facebook i can tell you as a historian they did not have those things in those days so how on earth do you tell people that you're on strike? How on earth do you get strike funds? Well, surely there, if Annie Besant led the strike, she would have been there. No, she's nowhere to be seen. So what they do, it's rather wonderful. They march around the streets of the East End, arm in arm, en masse, hundreds of them, and they sing very loudly and very rude, I'm afraid, songs about their employers and what they would like to do to their employers, which are not nice. There is mention of hanging old Bryant on a sour apple tree. It's absolutely disgraceful. To the tune of John Brown's body, which is so interesting, isn't it, that they're using Battle Hymn of the Republic. They're using that tune to sing their protest song, which they've just made up on the spot. But, you know, these are women who like musical songs. They're, they're very creative. They enjoy lyrics. And as they walk around, people hear them, obviously. And this draws attention. People come out onto their balconies, they open their windows, they come out to their doors, they're, what earth are you lot doing? And they say, well, we're the match women, as you probably know, because they would have known. They all had very distinct styles. You could tell a match woman. And we're on strike because our bosses are a bunch of bastards and they've sacked one of us for talking to a journalist and they treat us appallingly anyway and we're bullied by management and our wages are shocking and we're, we're not having it anymore and we're on strike. 
And so people threw down to them coins, whatever money they could get their hands on. And the women wore these long white aprons to cover their dresses and they caught them. They held them out and they caught these coins in their aprons. And that was their first strike fund. It's really impressive. Then they held mass meetings on Mile End Ways, traditionally a place where people met. And they had speakers. People came along to hear them. Other trade unionists, Lewis Lyons, uh, famous from the Jewish Tailors Union, a famously militant trade unionist, came along. And they really started to garner support. The Star newspaper sent down its journalist who was, you know, most discombobulated by the sight of poor women looking poor. And also by the fact that they were intelligent. This was a real shocker to the middle classes, just like to the MPs when they finally marched to Parliament. This journalist is saying, my goodness, these women are actually quite eloquent. They're actually expressing themselves quite politically. And they're saying we are typical of working people who are treated like this and we can't put up with it anymore. They're really rather surprised. This is not what we've been told about the inhabitants of the darkest East. They're supposed to be all savages and animals. You know, savages is a term that is literally used about them. So they carry on meeting. And at one point, Annie Besant finally, finally, a couple of days on from this, enters the picture. Bit weird for a supposed strike leader. And I looked at her journal and she says, well, I was working in my rooms in Fleet Street and I heard a commotion. And I looked out of the window and there was this gaggle of, of you know, quite rough looking girls, 100 or so. And they were blocking the pavement. You know, my goodness, this is nice London. People are trying to walk past and there's working class people. It's a bit of a, it's, it's you know, it, it causes a bit of an uproar. So she sends a note down and basically says, who the hell are you? Now that should put the kibosh on the fact that she was a strike leader. You can't recognise a strike. You can't recognise your strikers. And they said, with the match women, she entertained a couple of them to tea. She wouldn't have them all up or go down to them, you know, because they are they're not quite sure what the rabble's going to do. And she says they're quite respectable. And they tell her they're on strike. And she is not pleased. She writes in her political paper the link, the match women, the revolt of the matchmakers. The match women have gone on strike. But she says the girls will go back to work in this huge banner headline. They will go back to work, desperately hoping they will. And she says, you know, this was so ridiculous that they went on strike. They should have let a few people be sacked. We could have afforded to support a few people. But my God, now we have 1,400 people on strike. What on earth are we going to do to feed them? Again, this is not the rhetoric of a strike leader, is it? She's supposed to know about this strike. She's supposed to have brought it about. Why hasn't she got funds in place? The women march to Parliament. There's a lot of publicity. Besson really helps with that. She writes letters to the newspaper attacking Brian Tomei. She writes to the Times. The Times publish her. They publish Brian Tomei's response. It's like tennis. It goes back and forth. Everyone's accusing everyone else of things. And the matchroom marched to Parliament. And this is where people are so shocked to see these poor girls out of their area that they get shouted at, you know, can't stop in the street. Things are thrown at them. What on earth are you doing? Get back to the East End. But they won't. They help, They hold their heads high. And when they're finally in with the MPs, again, this fascinating clash of classes. The MPs have probably never sat and talked to an East End woman on an equal basis or a working class woman. They might have talked to their own servants, but that's not an equal relationship. So when they're in the room, one of the girls who's about 12 takes off her bonnet and they see that she's bald, completely bald on the top of her head. And she says, 
can you see my head? I've been working for Brighton and May since I was an infant, carrying pallets of matches on my head, and it's worn my hair away completely. Now, this is brilliant because they probably got young daughters about the same age with those beautiful Victorian ringlets, and this really hits them where they live. These red MPs that have invested in Bryant and May. This is all rather embarrassing, isn't it? Liberal MPs who are supposed to support the poor, and yet they're profiting off this. They tell them about Fossi Jewel, and the MPs are impressed that they're so intelligent and so eloquent. They start to swing on side, but Bryant and May fight a great rearguard action. A lot of the newspapers are on their side and saying, look at this disgraceful situation, these poor women and the worst sorts of people parading around the East End. I mean, how dare they? It's disgraceful. They've got jobs. They should be grateful. Brian to Mayor Gentleman, all that rhetoric that we're so used to. But the tide starts to turn very quickly because once the MPs are on side, respectable people are on side, they call for an independent investigation into conditions at the factory. And this investigation shows that what Annie Bessner said wasn't quite right, because actually conditions are worse. Things are far, far worse than she'd touched on in white slavery in London. Brian and I have nowhere to go at that point because their shareholders are coming to them and say, for God's sake, you've got to do something about this. You know, share prices are dropping. That's, you know, capitalists do care about that, don't they? You're going to have to back down. The government are telling them that they do need to back down at this point. And they're so angry about it, so angry. You can see it in the company archives. They're fuming about it for absolutely decades whenever there's a mention of the strike. But they have to climb down with the worst possible grace. You know, it's not um, a Christmas carol type scenario. They haven't been visited by ghosts and become nice Scrooge and seen the error of their ways at all. They're forced into this as they see it, undignified climb down. And within a little over two weeks, they had to grant these women the right to form the largest union of women and girls in the entire country and better rates of pay and their separate dining room to eat in, and the right to take their grievances over the heads of the foremen to the directors. I love to think of how furiously pissed off the foreman must have been about this, that the women could go sailing out of the room and say, sorry, Fred, I'm going to complain to the directors. I don't like the way you're running things down here. It was a complete rebalancing of power. And they swept back victoriously into work. And I would imagine they would have had their beautiful hats from their feather clubs as they did so. Absolutely victorious, absolutely unexpected. Nobody expected that was going to be the outcome. Not the first strike by women, by the way, not even by these women. They'd been on strike before. It was the only weapon that very poor people had. But to win and to win against one of the most powerful employers in the country was absolutely unprecedented. Brilliant. So, um, the strike was June 1888, right? Yeah, 2nd of July, I think it started. Yes, it did. Oh, okay, okay, right. Yeah, so the um, the peace white slavery in London, that came out in June, and then there was just this little bit of build-up. Right, right. Um, so, of course, then in this season of Unobscured, we are following the the murders in Whitechapel, mm. the investigation. Yeah, indeed, yeah. Um. And we're really going to be looking at, you know, what the police were doing and 
the tourism on Hanbury Street, you know, starting with Andy Chapman's murder, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and all of that is uh, in the months after the strike. Yeah, August, that's right. September. Um, but at the beginning of October, or no, kind of the middle of October, mm. um, that, that radical newspaper, The Star, mm. reports that Bryant and May have received a letter mm. signed, signed by the Ripper. Um, do you have the text of it there? I do. I do. Um, yes. Would you be willing to read that for us? And then, yes. and then, and then tell us what does that letter reveal to us about how working women who lived across the East end were experiencing the panic that fall, which some writers have called the autumn of terror. Uh, how would that have been felt by the people whose neighborhoods this was? It's so interesting and it's so revealing. So we hear from the newspaper, information was given to the city police on Saturday morning that Messrs. Bryant and May had received a letter signed J. Ripper and couched in the following terms. I hereby notify you that I'm going to pay your girls a visit. I hear they are beginning to say what they will do with me. I'm going to see what a few of them have in their stomachs. Charming. And I will take it out of them so that they will have no more to do on the quiet. Signed, John Ripper. P.S. I am in Poplar today. Well, it's an incredible letter. Um, whether or not it was a hoax, what it says is so revealing, even in a few lines, if we break it down. So this person says, the reason he's going to attack the match women, is I hear they are beginning to say what they will do with me. Well, what does that mean? That means that the match women, rather than being understandably terrified that there is a killer stalking their streets, are furious. Because what this means, they're going to say what they will do with me. They're presumably saying, right, we're going to find that bastard. <laughs> Wait till we get our hands on him. They are threatening the ripper, basically. And they weren't the only ones doing that. Of course, there were vigilante committees who were going around trying to keep an eye on the Ripper. It would be fascinating to know whether the matchwomen were doing that themselves. I love to think of them parading the back alleys of Whitechapel with their hat pins at the ready just in case. But that's what he's retaliating against. They're threatening him. And then, of course, he issues his disgusting threat and says they will have no more to do on the choir. And that is about prostitution. So whoever this is, is implying that as working girls, they're also doing things on the quiet. They are also engaging in sex work or prostitution. So for just a few lines, it really tells us a lot. Now, we know people were scared. Of course, they were scared. We know that women working in prostitution were trying to get into workhouses overnight. And that was unusual. The poor feared the workhouses like nothing else. That was the real nightmare scenario was being placed in a workhouse. Awful conditions. If you had children, you were separated from them. It was really, really brutal. But for once, they're thinking they are safer off the streets but not the match women. And I would bet not all women either, because the sad truth of it is, although this, these murders, this murderer gets so taken up by the press and gets so sensationalized, people killing women is nothing new in the East End. 
people killing prostituted women is nothing new in the East End. Had it not been so dramatised and sensationalised, perhaps they wouldn't, would scarcely have known what was happening. But certainly, to people like the match women, this was just a sense of outrage. These are our streets. This is our manor. How dare some bloke come on to our manor and behave like this to women like us, to East End women and girls. They're absolutely outraged. And I think that tells us an awful lot about their spirit. Mm, mm, brilliant. Do we actually know any uh, details about the lives of uh, some of the girls like Mary Driscoll, Martha Robinson, in those months after the strike, while these things were happening, um, what were the first few months of, you know, union life like? Yeah, the union was really active and they were probably more concerned and busy with that than they would have been worrying about the rip. I'm not saying they didn't worry. I'm sure when they walked down the streets at night, they were concerned. But you see, they were always in danger. The East End was never a safe space if you were a working class woman. So they always travelled in gangs. Middle classes hated this because they were noisy gangs and they were disrespectful gangs. And they would be singing and they would be using terrible language and people would you know, get their kids off the street when all oh, the match women are coming off shift. Come along, dear, inside, inside, stop your ears. These vile women are out in the streets being, being a bit rough and working class. So they always did that. They were really used to taking precautions. So probably life didn't change that much for them. And you always had someone in a family, all the women had to learn to fight, you know, not just because they were horrible, violent people, because you had to. There were always people trying to grab you down a, you know, drag you down a dark alley. And those were often people from outside the area who would come in and people would be raped, children would, would be kidnapped. There were awful things used to happen in those dark streets. So they had to defend themselves. And there was a wonderful story I got from one of the descendants about how good the women were at fighting, which really illustrates the fact that outsiders, like posh outsiders, were really noticed in the East End as well. And he told this story about one of his relatives being in a bookies. I think it was one of his great aunts was in the bookies one day, lining up to place her bet. And behind her in comes a toff with a top hat, a rich guy for some reason is in the area. And stands behind her to place his bet and some of the local lads who are in there think this is an opportunity here for a bit of mischief so they reach round said toff and they pinch auntie's bottom now she does not ask any questions at this point by the way she just wheels round leading with her fist and knocks the bloke out with one punch so one good right hook and this poor toff Top hat, doubtless flying across the bookings floor, is spark out on the floor. So that tells you how violent, you know, how dangerous life was for women. They had to be prepared to come out fighting and no questions asked. So I think in that respect, they would have been much more careful, but they were always used to being careful. They were always used to being on their guard and to not being particularly safe in their own streets. And the union was so busy because, you see, they didn't rest on their laurels. If they hadn't been involved in their own strike, if they had been passive puppets, you imagine they would have just thought, well, we've done it now. We've got a union. We've done really well. Life goes on. But actually, they didn't. They kept unionising. They kept taking the message to other groups of workers. So the girls that worked in nearby 
confectionery factories, the sweetie girls who worked in jam factories, the wives of East End dockers. They were constantly having meetings and trying to unionize them as well. And there's a really amusing account from one of the leagues of middle-class women, philanthropic women who were trying to organize working-class women, but in a bit of a middle-class top-down way, which didn't always go down very well with the women themselves. But they recorded at the time that they were absolutely worn out with these match women because they kept coming to them and saying, all right, um, we want you to help us because we want to have another union meeting, please, um, with the Jam Factory girls. And we'd like you to help us find a venue, please. And then we would like tea and cakes and we would like some Irish music. And they were like, oh, my God, you know, we've got to try and find an Irish musician now at short notice. But I love this idea of a union meeting that involves tea and cakes and Irish dancing. How fantastic. And I have a little matchman's festival every year right close to their old factory in Bow. And I have music and tea and, well, not so much tea and cakes as gin. But anyway, I like to think it's very much in the spirit of the matchwomen. So they were incredibly busy unionising. You know, they weren't messing about. And it's so interesting that they took this message to the dockers as well. Now, the big great dock strike of 1889 has traditionally been what historians of the labour movement, the union movement, look to as a big starting event, very important. This is where modern trade unionism, that is trade unionism with a political objective to liberate the working class, really, as opposed to just a, a sort of boys club, really, that the previous unions were to keep people out of the profession, to organise apprenticeships, to keep your own labour price high. This is a very different thing, modern trade unionism. And it's been dated from the dock strike and historians those historians have even bothered to write about the match women in a line or two have said well this was just a vague sort of minor harbinger of the dock strike and you think what does that mean exactly if it happened first is it not part of the same movement but the start of it would you not think and I've had historians say to me oh Louise you know, you're really failing to understand the way this works. I understand you come from a trade union background, you're not really an academic, but no, this is not really the way this happens. The dock strike, you know, these were just girls, the dock strike was far more important. Well, I went back in my sort of nerdy, geeky way and studied those months after the matrimony strike really intensely, really, really intensely. I got out the record of um, incidents of strikes which were recorded for like every week after the matrimony strike and every week before I looked at years and years of this stuff and I found that strikes shot up shot up right after the matrimony strike and there's no other way to explain it because I looked I went right back and looked at averages on years everyone in the east end is going on strike the tailors the seamstresses you know the jam factories the furplers everyone's going on strike you know, because working people aren't stupid. They they see an example here. Oh, look, they are workers like us. They're supposed to be powerless. Blimey, they're now trade union leaders and they've got better conditions. You know, how dumb do we think working people are that <laughs> this would be lost on them? Of course it wasn't lost on them. And the dockers union, we find, go to the matchman's union and they say, can you help us? Basically, can you help us? So, so, Far from what historians have said, oh, these are two totally different groups of workers. There's no connection. And there's a year, by the way, between the strikes. So it can't have any, can't be inspired by the match women. Actually, they tried a strike 
in the autumn that was totally inspired by the match women who said so, the leaders of the Dockers Union said so themselves. You know, their people came to speak to us. We tried to strike. It wasn't successful, but it was a rehearsal for 1889. And in 1889, they pulled this strike off big time. It was a humongous strike that spread to become almost a general strike, really, and spread to other countries as well. They had support from other countries. The whole of London was almost out. It was like a city of the dead, because in those days, you could take what's called secondary action. So if someone comes out on strike, you can do a secondary strike. You can come out on strike to support them. I'm old enough to just about remember those heady days when you can still do that. You can't now. So everyone came out and supported them, including match women, by the way, came out on strike in support of them. Now, can we prove, though, that Dockers were inspired by match women when all the mainly manly historians have said they definitely weren't? Well, apart from the fact that I looked at census records, boy, did I look at census records. I haunted those census offices. And match women and Dockers are so much the same people, practically. Jim Best, one of the descendants I talked to, said, Lou, they're the same people. There's no separation between these people. Match women marry Dockers. Um, match women are the mothers of dockers, the sisters of dockers, the friends of dockers. You know, working people do inspire each other. They do talk, of course. And this strike is unquestionably a huge event, but it's unsuccessful at first. The dock company really fight back. <clears throat> and John Burns, one of the key leaders who goes on to be an MP, says during the strike to a mass meeting of hundreds of thousands of men, don't give up, stand shoulder to shoulder, Remember the match girls who won their fight and formed a union. Well, I mean, wow. And he says that kind of thing constantly, by the way. He doesn't say, oh, some match women, you probably haven't heard of them. They were from Brian to May down the road. They apparently had a strike. He says the match girls. And he knows everyone knows. Hundreds of thousands of men listening. They all know damn well who the match women are. That's how inspiring they are. When the leaders wrote their memoirs, they said things like it was the match women that started it. They they were the first signs. They were the first encouragement, the first inspiration. They were the start of new unionism. What more do you need than that? And yet historians have seen that, presumably. If I can find it, you can find it. And dismissed it and said, no, 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 no. Match girls, not really important. Um, too different from the Dockers. Wouldn't have influenced them. Too distant, a year apart. Absolutely. The two strikes have nothing to do with each other. And when you look at all the evidence. That is absolutely extraordinary. So, yes, long story short, the match women were really busy throughout all that time. They came out on strike to support the dockers, as I've said, but also as dockers' wives, they were involved in rent strikes. Rent strikes, really incredibly powerful weapon that women often employ, actually, employ to great effect. And they strung a banner, I presume made of sheets, I don't know how else they would have done it, across the commercial road. And they said, our husbands are on strike. For us wives, it is not honey. So we do not think that it is right to give the landlords money. In other words, tough lads, you can whistle for your rents. You're getting nothing until this strike is settled. So yes, there was one hell of a lot more going on in this period than one, you know, inadequate psychopath murdering women. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that this was the beginning of this new unionism in Britain. Um, what ended up being the fruits of this period 
of unionism? What did it what did it bring? What did it result in in, in Britain, in British mm. life? Well, it comes right down to the Labour Party today. This is a chain of events. This is hundreds and thousands of the most exploited workers who've been completely left out of any kind of consideration of unionism before, on the whole, saying, we're going to do what they did. They used a strike as a means to force open the door to unionisation. They forced the employers to let them unionise. The union movement, they didn't bother waiting for them to get around to them, which is what you're supposed to do if you're very poor, politely respectively wait your turn and maybe eventually the big boys of the union movement might bother to get around to you probably not but you never know your luck but no they forced the pace they used strikes to force the rights to form their own unions and there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them formed across the country as far away as Ireland too it's incredible how news traveled in those days and Irish seamstresses unions wrote and said we've heard about the match women please come and tell us how to do it we want to unionize as well so it really was striking a light you know it really went like a fire it just spread and spread and spread although the employers fought back I mean of course the employers always will they fought back quite viciously and a lot of those new unions did fold but in a way that didn't really matter because things never went back things never went backwards the match women's union stayed active until 1920 when it was merged into um, the GMB general municipal boilermakers one of our big unions so it stayed through all that period and people that have written about it um, and not many people have written about the strike itself, but I did read one paper that suggested, oh, it can't have been an important strike because the union only lasted till 1920. Well, rather outrage on the matrimon's behalf. Not only did it survive all that time when employers were kicking and fighting back with everything they had, but it survived and continued to become part of one of our most major unions. So it's an incredible achievement. And it's out of that modern labour movement, that modern trade union movement, that the Labour Party, of course, began significantly. Whether or not it likes to remember it today, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, but it's completely beholden to the union movement. And I was really pleased after, oh gosh, 20 years of plugging away at this message, plugging away at it, that these women were so important, that Jeremy Corbyn said, um, I think it was on International Women's Day in 2016. He said we should hail the mothers of our movement. And he acknowledged my work and he acknowledged the match women as the mothers of the trade union movement. And, you know, I felt my job is done. I was incredibly happy with that. And maybe as a final grace note on our conversation today, can you describe that Gladstone statue? How it's still treated today? Well, this is so fascinating. The statue is still there. And I have my Match Women's Festival right next to it, actually, um, in a lovely little venue called Bow Arts on the Bow Road. <clears throat> it's still there, but there's one very significant thing about it that you would notice if you were walking along the Bow Road and having a look at Gladstone. As I said, he's got one of his arms outstretched, one of his hands outstretched, and it's pointing kind of in the direction of the Bryanton May factory. If you were to look fairly closely, you'd notice that that hand is red. It's a slightly faded red. 
but it's definitely red. Now, why on earth is that? Well, it harks back to the match woman rushing the statue and saying, our blood paid for this all those decades before. I was told by Ted Lewis, um, the grandson of Martha Robertson, that actually it was his grandma and her friends who first threw paint over it. This statue kept annoying them. They were not done with this statue from charging at it and dripping their blood on its bit. It was a constant source of annoyance to them. And you can imagine that it would have been. They had to walk past it at least twice a day in and out of work. And they must have thought, oh, our wages paid for that bloody statue. Why are its hands still red now, though? Well, I've tried to find out who done it. Now, you can understand why people might not want to tell me, because I suppose it is criminal damage after all, isn't it? Not that I would dob them into the police, but they don't necessarily know that. But it's been done at least since the 1980s. And by that, I mean the hand regularly painted red. It may well have had paint chucked at it by match women as well for, for many years. But this was when the factory became a gated housing community. Bryanton May moved their operations. They were taken over by Swedish Match. And in the 80s, this became what we used to call yuppie flats in those days. And there was a lot of anger about that in the neighbourhood, this gentrification. And Gladstone's hand, as far as I can tell, asking the council, has been painted red ever since. And the council are not happy, by the way, at all. And they've just given up. So what they used to do was to clean it every time the hand was painted red but this was really expensive and it kept happening so they just gave up and they've left it red which i'm very pleased about because it's a lovely little historical reminder i've asked and asked who might have done it so i'd like to shake them by the hand whether or not it was covered in red paint and buy them a drink i was told once by somebody at a talk. I know someone who did that. It was one of my mates, but it wasn't massively political. She was just a bit drunk. She'd been in the pub and she happened to be walking past it. Now, I love that story, but I don't buy it because this statue is up a massive plinth in the middle of the Bow Road. Now, you would need a ladder and I doubt that you'd be in the pub with a pot of red paint, a paintbrush and a ladder in your handbag. I just can't see it. I really hope, though, that one day I find out. And if you're listening and you know, please tell me. I promise I will not tell anybody. But I would love to have the satisfaction of knowing who does it. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. I think that's where we'll wrap it up. Fantastic. Louise, thank you so much for telling the Match Women's story again for Unobscured and our listeners. It's such a pleasure to have you and to have this story to include in exploring the East End of 1888 and, and beyond. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast. That's it for this week's episode of Unobscured. Stick around after this short sponsor break for a preview of what's in store for next week. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury 
with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. We figured that the killer had to know Whitechapel. He had to be able to move around Whitechapel in Spitalfields without causing suspicion. And he had to know all these dark alleys and cut-throughs. Um, he had to be able to avoid police patrols, particularly as more and more police were put on the streets, um, particularly following the double event. So this is someone who needs to know his local environment. And that doesn't really fit with a doctor from outside or a slumming toff or any of these other people. Um, it has to be a local man, I think. You had to have somebody who had a clear motive for wanting to kill him. Many of the books I've read about Jack Ripper, I can't really understand why he would do the things he would do. That's kind of the bit that the writers don't tell you. Why would he do that? Now, I understand, of course, that without knowing who the killer is and without a confession, we can never know why somebody chooses to murder. But I feel you had to find a try and identify a motive. And in this case, we found somebody who had means, motive and opportunity. Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams and Josh Thane in partnership with iHeartRadio. Research and writing for this season is all the work of my right-hand man, Carl Nellis, and the brilliant Chad Lawson composed the brand new soundtrack. Learn more about our contributing historians, source material, and links to our other shows over at historyunobscured.com. And until next time, thanks for listening. Unobscured is a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.